For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Recorded live. There may be four seasons out there in the world, winter, spring, summer, fall. But for those of us who toil in the vineyard of the NFL draft, we have truth season. And the truth season is when football is being played. And then we have the silly season, when football stops being played. And then after that, right before the draft, we have what I like to call lying season. Now, some people disagree about when lying season begins. Some people think it begins as soon as football stops being played. Some people think it doesn't start until after the combine. Some people say after the senior bowl. But we will have someone with us to talk about what they think lying season is, how they treat this rather funny part of the evaluation process, and how they, what tools they use to sift out the wheat from the chaff. Anthony, I believe you've joined us today. Yeah, that's me. Hey, thanks for having me on, Bill. I appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Uh, do you prefer to be called Anthony, your full name that your mother named you? Do you prefer Tony? What would you like to be called? I think my my mom would uh, be very disappointed if I didn't say Anthony. <laughs> old there we go. There we, I mean, there's a saint with that name, for the love of God. Let's go with that. Oh, yeah. There's no saint Tony, as far as I know. No, 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 not yet at least. I don't know. Maybe, uh, <laughs> right, maybe. Right, yeah. Right. So there's Staten Island being born in this very moment in the future St. Tony. <laughs> uh, I have been messing around with the NFL draft for a very long time. This will be my 36th year writing about the draft. And when I started, we literally – would UPS tapes to each other across country because we couldn't see everybody. There was no ESPN. Well, there was ESPN, but it wasn't doing very much. I mean, in those days, ESPN had things like Irish hurling and Australian roots football. The CFL uh, was available, but, the, but college football was not actually a part of ESPN in those days. So the idea of nationally watching almost any player from almost any part of the country was not a thing when I was growing up. So luckily I grew up in a Navy town. And so some of my little draft geek friends would get transferred to Washington or Rhode Island or Florida or Texas. Uh, and we would ship tapes to each other. Hey, I've got Steve Pallor. Well, great. I'll send you some, you know, some uh, Torin Dorn, you know. So we would send each other tapes of players we'd watch and write our little notes and, you know, mimeograph stuff in our school offices and send it to our little friends. And, you know, I don't even know why we were doing it. Um, there was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. There was really no Internet to speak of. It was just a bunch of junior high and high school kids obsessed with the NFL and particularly obsessed with the draft. And, you know, I particularly looked up to a guy named the late, great Joel Buxbaum, who – uh, was a Brooklynite and a very strange person. And I think there's a really good movie to be made about his life. I think someone did make a short documentary, but I would like to see a full-fledged 
feature film because he was such an odd, distinct character. Uh, and he was really the goat when it came to quote-unquote draft nicks or whatever you want to call it. No offense to whoever you want to bring up, Kuiper, McShay, whatever, they couldn't have held his jock. He was the best. And so far ahead of everyone else you want to bring up, if you ever want to just dig into the greatest of all time when it comes to the stuff that we're trying to do, look up Joel Buxbaum. No one could touch him. No one. He was so deeply obsessed with it. He, he had nothing else going on in his life. He never held really a full-time job. He forgot to eat sometimes. I'm not even joking when I say this. He would lose during draft season. He would lose a lot of weight because he would literally forget to eat. And, uh, you know, he was down to earning 20-something pounds at one point. Uh, and he wasn't, you know, tiny. He was probably 5'10", 5'11". Uh, but, yeah, he was a husky kid even. He was a good size, but, you know, whatever. And he, he probably had autism. I mean, you know, I'm not going to lie. His ability to categorize and maintain the stuff he could keep in his head. He had a computer, a couple of computers even, but most of it was in his head. Uh, but, yeah, I, I didn't come here to ramble on about the greatest of all draft minds ever. But if you ever just want to, but if you ever just want to dig into the best of, the best, the best of the best. His name was Joel Buxbaum. It's spelled B-U-C-H-S-B-A-U-M. And he died about oh God, 14, 15 years ago. And Pro Football Weekly still has a really good draft guide. It's still one of the top-tier draft guides. But it hasn't been the same since he died. The one, and if, the people, if, you have, if you run across somebody who's having a yard sale or something, and you can find any of the old Joel Buxbaum-helmed uh, PFW uh, uh, draft um, reviews or previews, draft previews, obviously. Uh, if you can find any of those, so from 2002, 2001, anything like that on back, buy them. Buy them. If someone's having a yard sale, an estate sale, whatever, and you see them, buy them. Um, one is they actually do have some collector's value because, at least amongst the draft community, uh, because anyone who really is a big fan of the draft, they know that there's nobody better than Joel Bookstone. And two, if you just want to see how to write an amazing scouting report, that's the guy to learn from. Okay, enough of me blathering. <laughs> uh, talk to me about how your evaluation process works and then how when there's so much disinformation being floated around, hey, I heard from so-and-so that such-and-such -such team really loves blah, blah, blah. What things do you flat out ignore what things you take with a grain or several grains or several tons of salt, and then which things do you choose to believe and how do you work through that? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, just in terms of my evaluation process, like as a whole, um, I'm pretty heavy into the analytics. I definitely enjoy the, the data side of player scouting, um, and I think that you really need to have uh, a nice balance between, you know, those factors. I think a lot of the stuff that I look at at different positions is usually a lot of it's related to age, guys who are able to be really productive at a young age. Uh, and, you know, we could go on about, like, what qualifies as, produ as productive. But, um, you know, really we want guys who are quality, quality producers at a young age. Uh, you definitely want the, the more film and scouting community uh, type of guys to, to uh, you know, to be buying as well. I don't think that, like, I don't think you ever want to be buying a guy purely based on the data. I think everything that I've looked at uh, in terms of, like, matching up scout grades, uh, in particular from NFL Draft Scout, uh, you know, matching that up against success at the NFL level, you know, it's easy to see 
that there's a strong correlation there. So, like, the scouts and what they think really matters. I think that that's been kind of a, a tough part of the people. You know, a tough part of the data community is, like, getting them to actually buy, like, what the scouts are saying. Um, but I think that definitely we have to do that. So, you know, for me, it's age, it's productivity, and it's uh, what the scouts think. That's pretty much what I'm looking at uh, for player evaluation. You know, so when we get into, like, this season now where it's, you know, as you mentioned, lying season, right? Like, everyone everyone likes everyone and everyone hates everyone and everyone's trading for and trading away everyone. So <laughs> you have to kind of temper uh you know, what you take in a lot of times, I think that, you know, obviously these uh, coaches and GMs and agents and players, like everyone's trying to feed information to everybody else to kind of get the outcome that they want. So, I, you know, for me, I, I definitely want to hear, you know, multiple reports about the same news item before I start to believe in it, you know, particularly in terms of like, you know, players, players, you know, being coveted in the draft. Like I think now kind of a, like right now, I feel like the hot rumor is the Patriots are going to try to trade up and take a quarterback, you know, and, I don't know. Like, is that true, or is that is that something that people are just kind of filtering through the system, or something that people just think might happen? You know, I don't know. But if we hear it, if we keep hearing it over the next like two weeks, you know, then maybe there's some truth to it. So I definitely want to hear, you know, continuous and constant reports of something to kind of buy into it. Yeah. Well, I've learned long ago to realize that the Patriots are probably still the hardest to crack of all the remaining. There's not quite as much cloak and dagger nowadays. Uh, you, you're younger than I. I don't know your exact age, but there used to be way more skullduggery. <laughs> Teams would intentionally put out bad information, sometimes obviously bad information back in the day. Al Davis was famous for it, but he wasn't the only one. And I think nowadays the younger generation have gotten to some extent away from that. There's still, you know, stuff floated out there. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of bad information. But it's not. Guys aren't pretending they're spies as much as anything. There was a lot of true espionage. And part of it came from the guys that survived the AFL-NFL wars. And once again, viewed that a million years ago. Uh, to me, it's just better out of my memory. My father was a big AFL fan, in fact, and preferred the AFL to the NFL. was, in fact, a little disappointed, frankly, when the two merged, uh, that was, uh, then he got over it pretty quickly, but he thought the AFL was, you know, a more interesting league, and it was to some extent, uh, more colorful, both in terms of the players and the approach to playing the game, and even the uniforms were more colorful, but the... A lot of the old AFL teams, even with absorbed to the NFL, and of course Al Davis being the most obvious adherent, never fully, you know, they always they sort of had, had sort of one eye looking back towards being in the AFL, and a lot of times would still think of themselves sort of competing against the NFL guys. And the NFL, some of them at least, not all, but still looks sort of downward at the, at the AFC, formerly AFL team. And so for a while, some of the, you know, because, I mean, there was full-on counter espionage back during the NFL, AFL days. I don't know how much of a historian you are, but teams were actively doing things, sometimes even things that bordered on felonious, uh, including soft kidnapping. I'm not sure how best to put it. Semi-kidnapping, friendly, hey, kid, um, come 
see me. I want to talk to you about something and then not letting them leave. I mean, weird stuff went on back during the NFL, NFL wars. So some of that stuff carried over in terms of, like I said, sort of actual full-on counter espionage, violation of sort of the gentleman's agreements. So in the old days, once again, prior to everything being digital, some teams, particularly small schools, would have one or two reels of their whole season on eight millimeter. So a scout would come in to watch and somebody even borrow this team's season on eight millimeter. A famous story concerns a man named Bill Nunn, who was the father of the actor you may know, Bill Nunn uh, Jr. or Bill Nunn. Yeah, Bill Nunn Jr., who was who played Radio Rahim and Do the Right Thing. Oh, his nice. father, yeah, well, his father was a newspaper man, and the the grandfather of Bill Nunn was the founder of the black newspaper in Pittsburgh called the Pittsburgh Courier. His son, who had played high school and collegiate athletics, had become the sports editor of the the Courier, and the Steelers were god awful in the 1960s. Beyond terrible. I think he had something like uh, two winning seasons in the decade, and they were barely winning seasons, and then most of their seasons were way below. I think their collective winning percentage was somewhere in the 38-something, 37 percentile for the six, for the 1950s and, and 60s as a collective. So it occurred as the AFL or some AFL teams were flourishing with, with black talent that they needed to find a way to get into this. And their scouts, who were all white guys with what my friend called by a vowel last names, you know, I mean, they still have a bunch of those guys on staff at the Steelers. They still have guys with, you know, names like Gorzalak and, you know, Trishevsky and whatever. But these guys either weren't comfortable or just didn't know about the black players playing in the, the SWAC and the MEAC and these other, you know, other uh, HBCU schools. So... He had always read in the newspaper the Pittsburgh Couriers, uh, all HBCU or their their you know black all American teams what they called it, and he reached out, invited to lunch, Bill Nunn, and said, "Hey, how'd you like to come work for me? Wouldn't that be full time? I know you've got your newspaper thing, but it sort of began one of those amazing relationships because he's responsible, mostly if not entirely, for." changing the entire composition of that team. That team was white and slow. If you looked at that team team picture in, like, 1967. By 1977, that was a very different team. It's not entirely because of Bill Nunn, but largely. And some of the players that can be directly attributed to him include Donnie Schell, Mel Blunt, John Stallworth, Elsie Greenwood, Ernie Sims, J.T. Thomas, uh, Jefferson Street, Joe Gilliam, who, of course, was a son of one of Bill Nunn's college teammates when he was at West Virginia State. So he changed the composition of the team. He changed, and he was the, one of the, he was the NFL's first black scout. And then on the AFL side was a man named Lloyd A.C. Wells for the Chiefs, and that's why the Chiefs had a lot of their success. And he was responsible for a long list of players, including Otis Taylor and a bunch of others, that would never have found their way to Kansas City without A.C. Wells. And I've always thought that both those gentlemen deserve Hall of Fame consideration. But getting, getting off the history lesson, uh, in those days, there would be, 
in for, for small school kids, very often one reel of film for the whole team. And the gentleman's agreement is three days. You know, you'd have it three days and you'd have it back, you know, somewhere the third or fourth day at the latest so that other guys could come in and look at it. Well, in a direct violation of said gentleman's agreement, the Steelers never gave back John Stallworth's film. And the reason he was available for them to take, yes, latest he was available to take him, which was in the fourth round of the legendary 1974 draft, where they drafted four Hall of Famers, Lynn Swan, Mike Webster, Jack Lambert, and John Stallworth. I mean, no one's done that before, and no one will ever do it again. They drafted four Hall of Famers in one draft. That's yeah, a good that's day at the office. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's a career, that's a career maker. <laughs> that's a good day at the office. And, and as a sort of a fun fact cherry on top, Donnie Shell, who some people, and I'm one of those people, believe should be in the Hall of Fame, a targeting safety with 61 career interceptions, was found as an undrafted free agent, once again due to Bill Nunn, at the end of, at the, end of the 74 draft as an undrafted free agent. So if you want to toss him in there, that's five Hall of Famers, and one of them was undrafted or near Hall of Famers, and he's not in the Hall of Fame, but he probably should be. So we live in a different era now. You can't hide players anymore, or at least not as well as you could in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, the information is there for everyone who wants to see it. Practices, even down to the Division II level, are taped uh, or recorded digitally by almost every school you can name. It's accessible to almost any NFL team who has the, the interest and the will to find out almost anything they want about any, any player. So when you miss on a player now, you don't know about a player now, it's usually your own fault. Um, players, players could actually be literally hidden from you in the old days. That's no longer the case. And my reputation, I guess, is largely built on small school guys. I have, since my time when I first started with Consistent Draft Services back in 2002, Yes, so um, I've been concentrating on small school guys for the last 16, wow, yeah, uh, for the last 16 drafts, and it brings with it a special kind of frustration uh, because there's guys that I've seen and knew could play who are now county sheriffs, you know, sales reps for pharmaceutical companies, uh, assistant coaches, I mean, all kinds of things. And they're, they're as good or better than some of the guys who get to hang around because they went to LSU or they went to USC or they went to whatever school as backups or special teams guys just because they had the advantage of having been seen more. So because of my particular bent, um, I look very much at, at, once again, obviously production. We talked about production. And, yes, I mean, you want to know how good an athlete a guy is. Obviously, if you're a small school kid, you need, you need to check all the boxes. You need to be ultra productive, right? You know, I, I remember a lot of people got upset about Puna Ford not being invited to the combine, and I was like, well, I've watched Puna Ford, and he's a good player. But, you know, in the same state, not too far away, there's a kid named P.J. Holmes. Everything Puna Ford is but more of everything, more productive, more explosive, stronger, faster, everything more, literally everything more. Uh, and then just to sort of back it up, when I was at the Shrine Game practice, I got to watch them literally side by side. They were lined up right next to each other throughout practices. And it confirmed for me, I mean, I'm once again to be careful about confirmation bias. <laughs> yeah, I went down there really, but I wanted to really watch Puna Ford. So let me give Puna Ford a chance, you know. I want to make sure it's not just my small school kid bias making me think Hall's the better player. 
So I watched them two side by side, and I talked to Puna Ford about P.J. Hall. I said, hey, I've been watching you both, and you're two of my favorites here. Man, that P.J. Hall something. And Puna Ford, the funny thing is Puna Ford knew his stats. He was like, yeah, man, you don't get 22 and a half tackles for a loss in a season by you know, by being average. And I was like, wow, you go, Puna. So Puna had his kind of had his scouting hat on. It was noticing P.J. Hall. I guess he couldn't miss him. But P.J. Hall was an absolute monster. And if he goes in the fourth or fifth round, which who knows might happen, it, it, to me it's, it's highway robbery, and someone's gotten like a massive, like a Brinks car robbery steal on their head. Because if we're talking about people have a chance to be Jarrell Casey, I mean, he's not quite, you know, Aaron Donald, but he's the closest in this draft class. Have you watched P.J. Hall yet? Uh, no, I haven't. I actually, uh, I mean, I don't really watch, like, a ton of the defensive side of the ball. Really more, oh, right. really more on the offense, but I mean, it sounds like you're describing someone who's obviously a quality player. So I mean, <laughs> I definitely know the value of a tackle for a loss. Like we're 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 high on that for sure. Yeah, he's he's an absolute animal. I mean, he is he is he was an unblockable killing machine in college, and so I wanted to see him against you know D1 kids. But I was hoping he'd get invited, kicked up to the senior bowl, which didn't happen. But but it, he would have killed there too. I feel very strongly. I would have loved to have seen him go against a guy like Quentin Nell because that would have been a real test of his skills, right? Because he hadn't had any, and he didn't have them at the, at the, at the Shrine game either. He was just tossing guys around like empty wastebaskets. And the other guy who stood out head and shoulders above the crowd was Darius Fountain, who I'm guessing you have a chance to watch. Yeah, I have. And I, it's like I, I'm, not, I'm not as high on him as I feel like a lot of other people have been. Like I, I just – I don't know. Like he's, he's a little older – is a lot of his production, I think, wasn't as good as maybe some of the other lower-level guys. Like I, for me, like a Justin Watson, really blows away the production of a uh, of Fountain. So I, I don't know. I'm curious your thoughts because I've I've been kind of struggling to to see what what has everyone kind of buying in on him. Well, I think it's two things. One is he is extremely explosive. Uh, you know, 42 and a half inch vertical leap, uh, a straight Record holder in the state of Wisconsin in the in the hurdles, you know, a two hundred and eight pound guy who's six eight and five six feet sorry six eight six feet and five eight, but who moves like a hundred and eighty pounder. I mean, I have, once again, I have the advantage or slash disadvantage of actually having watched him in person, and his quickness for a guy that size. It's like watching. Remember San Antonio Holmes? Oh yeah. It's like watching a guy who's San Antonio Holmes, but is, you know, almost two hundred and ten pounds. And just a shade under six foot one, so you know a, a basically a, a big not big but a above medium sized receiver body moving like a tiny or like a small receiver, incredibly quick in and out of his breaks. He has really good hands. I think he had maybe two balls the entire practice week that he didn't didn't catch. Is he a guy who needs refinement in certain areas? And is he twenty three and four months or whatever it is? Yes. I would agree to both of those things. He is he is not, you know, a 21-year-old. But the small school guys rarely are super young unless they just started school early. Um, more often than not, they they do all four years because I can count on one hand, you know, the, the guys who came out early from that level, and most of them, you know, shouldn't have. Um, you know, so it usually it worked out. Uh, Daniel Manning, who was a Division II kid who declared early from Abilene Christian, is one of the few sort of quote-unquote success stories that, he didn't exactly have a Hall of Fame career, but he managed to hang around the league for a while. Uh, I generally think 
coming out early unless you are absolutely a dominant player is usually a bad idea. And, you know, obviously I know the, the sort of age guys love guys getting out there early. I like seeing guys being as ready as they possibly can be. So it's sort of a, a thing that I sort of try to balance out. There's some positions, like if you're a terrific cornerback or a terrific running back, you should probably get out there. I've always thought that quarterback, safety, interior offensive line, there's certain positions where I think you're better off unless, like I said, there's some compelling reason to come out early. Usually better off staying because they don't spend a lot of time going over the basics when you get to the NFL. It, it's a very fast pace. There's a lot to learn and very little time to learn it. And if you're not ready to go, you're going to get left behind. Uh, but the other thing I think it stands out about Therese, and once again, it helps. I have the advantage, class, the advantage of having talked to him. You can tell he's he's a worker. I mean, he's a guy that he's an extremely hard grader. He's a guy that if you ask him how he thought how he thought he did it, he always picks out all his little faults. You know, I should have done this more. I was I didn't do this, you know, quite right. I took the wrong angle on this. He never blames the quarterback. Even on he, he had something the quarterback in the Shrine game once again was. I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but it was not not excellent. Um, even you know, even some of the I mean. There's certain things that you sort of like to see receivers have to, and, and you know, I got to watch uh, the Watson kid from uh, Penn. He was there as well, and I was told that I got there a couple of days after they started, so I was told that he was better in the early part of the week, and he sort of shut it down. I don't know if he got word already he's going to the trying game or something, but he he wasn't blowing my mind. But once again, when I was watching him during practice, he seemed he seemed to be going like 80 percent speed, and which maybe that's what was actually happening. Yeah, I mean. But, uh, the other guy that a lot of people fell in love with during Shrine Game practices was, was Deshaun Hamilton, who did get yeah. the call up to the two-year bowl. Yeah, he's been getting a lot, a lot of buzz now, too, I feel like. But he's, he seems like the guy that I feel like, uh, like from a technical standpoint, a lot of people really like. Uh, but, again, like the production is weird because he, when he was a freshman, he, had a, he was very productive and I think probably had a chance to, to be extremely productive like for the rest of his career and he kind of his production uh kind of regressed until again he was a senior and he had you know 850 yards nine touchdowns you know really strong finish uh i would have liked to have seen him do a little more in those sophomore and junior years but you know this is uh this is where he's at I, you know it seems like from the technical standpoint he's pretty strong though yeah well he's here's what i will say he certainly understands manipulation of the the cornerback. He understands how to set a guy up. He understands how to get a guy a little bit off balance and take advantage of that. He's not super explosive. Um, he's not a guy who's incredibly who has that two-step going full speed thing that Doris has. Doris within two steps is going full speed. Where it takes Hamilton another couple steps to get to full speed. So he's probably more likely to be a possession receiver, while Dries Fountain can run past people, and did, consistently. Now, the quarterbacks often missed him, but he was running past people consistently. That's the other thing. I mean, you're asking what people like. They like he can run past people. This is a pretty good wide receiver class, but there's not a lot of blazers in it. He's one of the fastest receivers in this class and a great leaper on top of it. That's a good combination. So people like the fact he's got a good, strong body. He's pretty rocked up. And once again, I have the advantage I haven't seen him up close. Uh, he's got broad shoulders, strong arms, a big chest, and, you know, he's cut and fast. 
and strong. Those things still count. I agree that he's got things to work on, but he knows that too, and he's working on them. So he's not a guy that has an overblown sense of where he is. Since I'm, I'm a, a maven for the small school kids, I'll keep rolling on with them. And I'm going to talk about Jalen Ashwin a little bit and about Elijah Marks. Um, have you had a chance to check those two out? Uh, no, I mean, tell, tell me a little bit about those guys. Well, Jalen Ackland is probably the most productive kid you'll study all year. Um, he was the number two and the number three receiver for most of his career until Lance uh, Lenore, who is now, I believe, a cowboy. Uh, oh, you know, yeah, I have. Okay, I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. And uh, he tested extremely well, but super productive, hard-nosed kid. Once again, you're talking about Western Illinois guys. I mean, I remember the first time I went to see Western Illinois play, you know, I, I was watching a 270-pound linebacker, you may know, named Rodney Harrison. And he was trying to kill people. He was basically a human baseball bat. And they – you don't want to sort of, quote, unquote, scout the helmets, but I've noticed that that program builds toughness. You can't stay there if you're not – first of all, Western Illinois, I've, I've been on their campus. It's not exactly a garden spot. Once again, I'm not trying to, to be mean, but – it's not one of those places where you're going to say, oh, man, i got to go here. Man, look at this campus. I mean, it's not, not that. It's not as I used to joke about the semi-tropical paradise that is Macomb, Illinois, even with kids who were from there, and they sort of laugh like, yeah, we know. It's, you know, kind of, kind of a rough-looking place. I mean, not rough as in ugly, but rough as in rough-hewn. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not Duke's campus. It's not USC's campus. It's, it's you know, very Spartan, I think is the term I can use. Uh, it kind of crops up out of the middle of the western Illinois plains, and it's, you know, not a lot to bring you there unless you're there to get an education or, or play sports or both. But those kids are tough. Their coaching staff is tough. They, they, they practice outside in all kinds of weather. I mean, they're a tough bunch. And it shows in their play. Uh, he's, he blocks. He's a full-service receiver. He goes over the middle. He goes deep. Uh, his testing numbers are, so for people who didn't think he could run, I think they will be surprised by how he tested. I never knew why people thought he was slow, unless it's that he's white or something. I don't know. I don't understand it. But he's not slow. He's very fast. And once again, uh, catches everything. Terrific hands. I mean, he really, he can tell you, like, what balls he's dropped, what the situation was. Like, he really focuses on it. Like, oh, yeah, I had a drop against so-and-so you know, against Eastern and blah, blah, blah. I was running a, and was running a cross, you know, when it was a mesh concept and I was whatever. You know, he can like, tell you what was going on. He's, always, he's one of those guys, complete grinder, but a talented one. And he'll probably go very late in the draft. And somebody's going to have found themselves one hell of something. I mean, they're going to be shocked because he's, he's going to start giving it to people. <laughs> he's going to scout team at first. And he's going to be giving it to people. They're going, well, you know, this is a fluke. I mean, People want to know, you know, still to this day, how do the Adam Thielens, how these guys fall through the cracks? Well, I mean, part of it is what I call mental picture scouting. People get in their mind what an elite player looks like, and they aren't looking at what the player's doing. They're looking at what they think the player should look like. That's one of the things that's helping Josh Allen. He matches people's mental picture of an elite quarterback. Does he play like one? But, but that's what he looks like, right? He looks the part. And for a lot of guys who don't, quote, unquote, look the part, no matter how much they do, if you're James Harrison, no matter what you do, people are going to think you don't look the part. 
Joe Osman. I know you don't spend much time on the defensive side of the ball, but the guy is an incredibly effective defensive player. And I guess he's white or his arms are short or whatever it is, but people just won't warm up to him. But throw on the tape. In every single game, against every single team, he's out there knocking people back when he, when he makes contact with them, shedding blockers, making plays in the backfield, sacking quarterbacks, dropping into coverage. He's not great at that, but he does it well enough. I mean, for a guy who's basically a pass rusher by, by nature and by usage in his, in his college team, and frankly, you should do the same – don't turn him into a fullback. It drives me nuts when they do, when they, like with Bruce Miller or, you know, some of these other, you know, dope mass and middle picture pass rusher guys who are incredibly productive. They say, well, we like him, but we're going to turn him into a fullback. Come on. What? <laughs> it blows my mind. It drives me nuts. Like, Bruce Miller was an incredibly effective pass rusher. Yes, he didn't run super fast. Yes, he didn't have the super long arms, but he wasn't doing it with nearest people. You know, he was, he was beating blockers, including against Florida. I mean, oh, whatever. I just have to, you know, get over it, I guess. But um, when you are looking at – so what's productive mean to you? Because production means different things to different people. Yeah, so for me, I'm looking at most things in terms of uh, market share. So, like, you know, obviously, like, these guys, when you look at them across different programs, a lot of what they do in terms of the raw numbers are going to be based off of, like, the offense the team runs, right? Like, are they pass-heavy, are they spread, are they air raid? I mean, there's, you know, there's so many different things that can change the, the raw production. But if you uh, just do things based on percentages, and for me I'm looking at percentage of, you know, team passing yards, percentage of team passing touchdowns, things like that, uh, you know, now that's going to give the context of, of the passing offense. So that's, you know, at receiver, let's say in particular, you know, I really like guys who have, you know, high market share of yards. I mean, the guys who push close to, you know, in that 50% mark, like a DJ Moore, you know, those are guys that I definitely love. Um, you know, but even the guys who maybe if you wait it a little bit with the, the yards and the touchdowns can still get, you know, over maybe like 30%. I think that that's still, you know, something that I, I'm looking at, uh, you know, uh, as quality. You know, for me, the when I'm looking at when I say I want someone who is productive at a young age, you know, the the mark or the threshold that I'm really looking for is, you know, 30 percent, uh, you know, a 30 percent average, I should say, of receiving yards and receiving touchdowns. You do that, you know, at age, you know, 19 or something like that's that's really impressive to me. So that's that's what I'm looking at. So I mean, we're talking about. Uh, a guy at a smaller school like Nacklin, you know, he had 47% of his team's receiving yards last year. That's really, really impressive. You know, but obviously you, you do have to kind of, I guess, mentally account for, you know, the, the difference in, uh, you know, competition. So I, and that, that's kind of where I'm at in terms of, uh, you know, what makes a receiver productive. Okay. And I'll say this much. He faced, I would say, three or four DBs who are going to be playing in the NFL. Uh, that's a, he's not in a weak conference. Uh, he plays against some really good – the Missouri Valley Conference, football conference, in, is one of the top FCS conferences. So he gets to face Illinois State. He gets to face, uh, obviously, Eastern Illinois, uh, which, both of which are, are solid programs. And obviously, you know, the, the big-name program is obviously North Dakota State University, uh, which is, you know – killing machine. I mean, they, 
they have a lot of skins on their wall from the FCS. Ask Minnesota what it's like to play them. Ask a whole bunch of teams what it's like to play them. And there's they, they, a lot of Big Ten schools won't even schedule uh, North Dakota State University because, well, because. I mean, what have they got to, what have they got to gain? They have everything to lose and virtually nothing to gain. Um, you know, so if you're in Indiana, Indiana, you can sit around and like, I think Murray State's more on speed. Thank you, but no thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, it, is, it is a very, very good uh, football conference. And, frankly, if you were to match up all the teams in, let's say, the Sun Belt versus all the teams in the Missouri Valley Conference at the FCS level, if they were each team was to play each team, and you, I think it would be pretty evenly matched. I don't think there'd be a huge discrepancy between the two. So I look actually actual individual talent in each conference before instead of just looking at FCS, FBS, because there are FBS programs that would get their butts handed to them regularly if they were playing in that conference. Regularly, like Purdue would struggle to get to 500 if you drop them into the Missouri Valley Conference. I'm not even joking when I say that. It's true. They would struggle to get to 500 in that conference. Yeah, I mean, they I would buy that. They get beaten and beaten pretty solidly by some of the top teams in that conference. They, 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 they don't want any parts of NDSU. I promise you that if NDSU said, hey, I want a home and home, they'd be like, you know, Ball State's more our taste. I mean, Ball State's an SBS program, but Ball State's not as good as North Dakota State University. You know, so that's what I look at. I look at the actual talent. Now, that takes more time to just say, oh, this is Division Two, this is Division One. So I remember for a while there, now they've dropped off some, but Tuskegee was the best historically black college or university in the country for about three years, and they're Division Two. But they were better than any team in the MEAC. They were better than any team in the SWAC. And they're playing D2 football. So I look at the actual individual talent and the coaching, right, and try to figure out who could they beat, you know. And, and it, it's more work than just saying, well, this is Division two, so I put them here versus there are some Division two programs that are not very good. But there's some FBS programs that aren't very good. There's FBS programs that aren't very good. But they're also really good programs at all levels. And when you get to NAIA and Division three. It's a lot more work. One is it's hard to get tape on the kids. A lot of times you have to build relationships with the individual schools so they actually give you tape. Uh, but that takes years and, you know, lots of bugging people. But it pays off every once in a while when you find a kid like Krishan Howard last year at Marion. At, you know, you'll find, you know, Allie Marpet occasionally at Hobart. But it's, you know, or, or even, you know, uh, I mean, like I said, Cecil uh, Shorts, right? I mean, it, 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 every mm-hmm. once in a while, you'll find, you'll find a guy. It takes a while, but every once in a while, you know, Pierre Garçon, right? You'll find a guy. It, but you got to really dig. So there's a few guys, and once again, you know, I want to ask you to go dig into them, but there's a few guys that I think are legit in AIA talents, Division three talents. The problem is just getting someone to even look at them. And it's difficult, right? Because there's, you know, you've got, all, you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of schools and a guy has to basically do something, like get invited to the senior bowl. And that's what it usually takes for an AIA guy or a Division three guy to even have a shot at being fully evaluated by an NFL team. He's got something got to happen. He's got to get invited to somebody's pro day and run a 4-2-2. A kid from Cumberland did that. Wendell, 
was it not Wendell Williams? No, Wendell Williams. Yeah, it was Wendell Williams. Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. You got to do something like that. That's what it takes. You know, you got to you got to do something. Otherwise, they won't even watch your tape. I mean, that, that's just a fact, unfortunately. So right. for me, I, I I use a combination of things. Part of it is just relationships I've built with various programs over decades. So I get an idea sometimes of, because coaches will say, you know, who's the best kid you played last year? Oh, man, this kid, so we had nothing for him to do anything with it. So that, that helps to give me an idea or a context. When a team, when, when, if I talk to every coach in a conference and the same kid named, same kid's name comes up six, seven times, like, okay, so he must be pretty good. And, you know, you dig through the tape, you look at the, the numbers and how they stack up and, there are certain positions where I think it matters, level of competition matters more than, than, than some, and you, you may let me know what your feelings are. I always felt like for corners and wide receivers, because it's a, I don't want to say it's individualistic, because you're still part of the team, but you can sort of isolate out to some extent talent, right, and see what this person can and can't do in space to some extent, and then try to get an idea of the talent against, you know, whom they've played and things like that, it's a little difficult with a center, right? I mean, I remember a center a couple of years ago from um, Wisconsin Green Bay. Was it Wisconsin Green Bay? No, Stevens Point. Sorry, Stevens Point. That I've fallen in love with. Um, the kid did get invited to a, a workout and a tryout with the, with the Packers. And, you know, one of the things where, you know, you're in there for literally like 20-something minutes and they give you a, gym bag and, you know, and, you know, we'll, don't call us, we'll call you. I think that if he, with everything that that kid could do and how he tested out and things like that, if he'd been from a bigger school and they'd taken him more seriously, I think he would have stuck somewhere, you know, as a, as a player. But it's very difficult to even, like I said, I mean, I've built relationships. I could sometimes sort of sell um, a player to, uh, you know, sometimes just to get a kid to a pro day. A lot of these kids who are at smaller schools can't even get into a pro day, and so you have to you know, talk to some of your scout friends and say, look, can you contact the so-and-so, you know, this liaison or whatever at school X and say, will you please allow this kid from this nearby smaller school to kind of work out? Uh, because some schools, frankly, don't like having so many kids come in. One is because, frankly, they if, they, if a kid from another school comes and outshines your kid, right? Because this is, uh, once again, going back in the archives, but a kid named Robert Lane, from Michigan Tech, went to Michigan State's Pro Day and killed it. 43-inch, uh, 5'10 and a half, 189 pounds, 43-inch vertical, 4'4", four, four, one on one forty, four 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 on the other, 24 bench reps at 189 pounds, 24 bench reps. 6'7", uh, 6'7", six, seven, seven, six, seven, six, something like that, 3-cone, a 3-9-8, uh, short shuttle, just cr- crushed it. Crushed it. Completely outperformed every kid from Michigan State. And so Michigan State, uh, after that, was like a little weird about sometimes having kids from smaller schools come, you know, because he just completely blew the doors off their pro day. And so not every school is like that. Some schools are very open to it, especially when there's a good relationship. And um, I want to sort of applaud Jay Hobson, who, of course, used to be the coach at Auburn State. When Auburn State had literally zero pro scouts show up to their pro day, he opened the doors at Southern Miss 
to allow every single one of the Alcorn State kids who could get to Southern Miss in time to work out at their pro day. So, you know, hats off to him and giving, you know, four really good young players an opportunity, and three of whom I really like, uh, an opportunity to show what they can do. And one of whom, and I don't know how much you, you dig into some of these players, but there's a running back named Delance Taylor at Alcorn State that I think is one of the better power backs in this entire draft class. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing for me that's always tough, I think, with the the smaller school running backs is that it's like, how do you know, like, so, you, so you're saying, like, okay, he's a good power back, right? But how do you know that, like, that power would be as evident against, you know, maybe maybe some better competition? That, that's kind of like where I struggle with some of these smaller well, guys. Because you're right. That, like, yeah, that's like, that, that's yeah. where I look also at the testing, right? So if a guy who's, say, 216 pounds has a 35-and-a-half-inch vert, that means he's probably a pretty strong lad. You sort of look at, and obviously if you know the weight room numbers, which sometimes I find out by talking to the strength conditioning people, I mean, then you have to really dig, right? <laughs> you, can't just, you can't just be sitting there, you know, at your computer. You have to pick up the phone. I mean, that's what I do. Hey, right. if I want to know if a kid's a great weight room worker with weight room numbers, hey, what's his kid's power clean? What's his kid squat? What's his kid max bench? I just pick up the phone, <laughs> you know? And it takes a while to build those links where people will actually answer your questions. But if, you're, if you want to do this, thing for real, you got to make how often, how often would you say that, like, that people pick up when you do stuff like that? Because I've actually never, that's something I've never even really thought to do, is, like, try to actually just call the school or call the program. Oh, I, I've, I've been doing this since the 1980s. You had to pick up the phone, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, in 1982, what else could you do? You had to pick up the phone. So I've always done it. And so enough schools, there are certain schools now, sometimes when staff turns over, I have to sort of start over again. But at one point, I knew the SID at South Carolina State so well that if there was a kid I wanted to talk to or a staff member I wanted to talk to, his name was William Hamilton Sr., um, Bill Hamilton. I would call Bill Hamilton and say, hey, can you get so-and-so's information? Or how did, you know, hey, I heard William Ford is, you know, because they had a really good running back a few years back named William Ford, unfortunately, tore his ACL right at the, like in the, last, the last game of the season. So it messed him up. Uh, and he, he never really got a shot because of it. But, you know, I would get information on how he was rehabbing and, you know, what teams that were asking about him and things like that. And, you know, Javon Hargrave, right? I got a lot of information about Javon Hargrave going back to his sophomore year uh, because I think Hamilton actually left during his junior year. But, but up to that point, I had regular updates on Javon Hargrave on how he was doing and what he was, you know, I could talk, talk to strict conditioning people. I talked to opposing coaches, I mean, some of your best information on players come from opposing coaches because they study that kid. I mean, they, you know, they're the ones that really know that kid's strengths and weakness. So I don't know how seriously you want to do this thing and how much time and energy you want to put into it, but if you're willing to, you know, put 15, 20 hours a week into it, you can build a lot of relationships over several years. Yeah, I think that's, that's really good advice. Um... You know, just in, like in regards to Turner, like you know, seven and a half yards per carry, ten touchdowns, caught twenty-one passes. Like, definitely seems like someone who has a not even just as a power back. Like, it seems like someone just has kind of like a broader skill set. So, hopefully, he gets a shot. I mean, that's, that's 
Yeah, I feel like at running back, right? Like that's all we want. Like, we see we see these, some of these guys to get a shot because the position is just so loaded right now in, in town. Yeah. You know, the guys that are in the NFL, the guys that are coming into the NFL. It's like just get them a shot, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, here's what I will say. I mean, he's not that power back. I mean, he's he's not a power back in the sense of a three yards on a cloud of dust guy. I mean, but he's a guy that breaks a lot of tackle. I mean, tremendously effective goal line runner. I've seen him shed four and five tackles in a tight area. Uh, he that part of it's just his will, you know. He's, and part of it is he's a beast in the weight room. I mean, people ask you ask who on the program, and you know who's the guy who's maybe strongest pound for pound on your team. His name comes up a lot. So the other thing I will I will sort of talk about uh, guys like Chase Edmonds, guys like um, Rashad Penny. When a guy is a you know, sort of all-purpose guy, how do you approach them versus some of the more, I mean, no offense to say Darius Geis or whatever, but who aren't, who don't do quite as many things as well. How do you, how do you sort of slice those guys up? Say again? I'm sorry. I kind of, I couldn't really hear what you're saying. So, in your evaluation, speaking of running back and your evaluation process, how do you weigh the guys like Chase Edmonds, the guys like Rashad Penny, who give you some of everything. They they give you a lot of receiving yards. They give you return yards in, you know, punt and or kickoff return. How do you stack those guys up against Darius Geis, right, a guy who is a, a really talented running back, but, it's, but, so, but basically that's most of what he does. Yeah, I mean, those, those are the guys that I love. I love the guys who give you, like, the all-purpose production. I mean, just in terms of, like, the data, the – the yardage metric that has kind of correlated the most with, you know, NFL production has been adjusted all-purpose yards. So, you know, uh, you know, we're factoring in the return yards. We're factoring in the receiving yards. Like, all that stuff is, is really important. And, you know, a guy like a Chase Edmonds who has been able to carry the mail uh, on offense and then also be active somewhat in the return game, also made a catch about that, also ended up testing with awesome agility. I mean, he's a guy that I that I love. I think he can definitely be, you know, it, depending on the construct of your roster, like you need a guy to come in on third down, like Chase Edmonds can do that. You need a guy to spell your primary back, I think Chase Edmonds can do that. Like you need a guy who if your starter goes down and you need someone to fill in, Chase Edmonds can do that. Like I, I think that he's a guy that, that has a lot, of, a lot of potential fits at the NFL level. And, you know, is he ever going to be Darius Geis? Probably not. But he's he's a he's a guy that I think you know you can call on him kind of at any time. Like you have him on your roster, you, you have him with a, a relatively late draft pick. You, you're not paying him a lot of money, and, and he's a guy that you can kind of count on and rely on uh, on your football team. So I, he's a guy that I love. I no question. Okay, gotcha. Uh, and sticking with sort of those all-purpose guys, where are you on Rashad Penny? Uh, Penny for me right now is my number three running back in the class behind uh, Geis and behind, obviously, Saquon Barkley. So I, I think that, you know, what, what Penny has done, I know it's San Diego State, but what he's done has really been incredible. I mean, completely dominated in terms of all-purpose yards, uh, has been a tremendous factor in the return game for them. I mean, I, the the five, the five 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 club, which is something that I guess I kind of just made up, like five kick return touchdowns, five receiving touchdowns, five rushing touchdowns. The only other guy that's done that 
has been C.J. Spiller. And, you know, C.J. Spiller did it in a smaller frame. I think that this kind of speaks to the awesome athleticism that Penny does have and I think kind of his upside as a player. I mean, this is a a back that's over 220 pounds, so he can do the early down stuff. You know, but he also has the athleticism, obviously, to contribute in the receiving game and, and, you know, if you you so choose in the return game. So uh, I'm really high on Penny. Okay. Got it. And some of the people I've seen lately um, being pushed up people's boards include guys like DJ Sharp, uh, who was a guy that I'm not, I'm not going to say I didn't like his taste. I just, and I know, once again, maybe it's some of the mental picture stuff. He does have size and he does have speed. He has also some things that, that scare me a little bit. Uh, when, you're, when a guy is sort of a quote-unquote late riser, as as DJ Shark has been disguised, disguised, sorry, described, and he does have size and speed, but there's some peaks and valleys. I think it would be a way to describe his career. Uh, how do you evaluate those? Yeah. I mean, this is where I'm really leaning on the scouts because the the production for DJ Shark doesn't really scream like that. We should be excited, right? Like, I mean. Uh, wasn't able to do a ton in terms of offensive production at LSU. I don't think that that's a surprise. Like, I feel like LSU has had plenty of guys that have kind of underwhelmed, you know, in their program and then all of a sudden come into the NFL and been uh, fantastic. Obviously, you know, even someone like an Odell Beckham, I think, probably should have done more as a college player. So, like, the fact that DJ Shark, uh, you know, never had the major market share numbers that I look for is not as concerning just because of what we know about the program, but – I mean, this is a guy that just makes long plays happen. He averaged over 20 yards per reception. He averaged over 10 yards per rush. Uh, he was active in the return game. Like, uh, I'm not positive that I'm buying him as a first-round player. I mean, I think certainly when you look at some of the other guys who have gone in the first round, like a Philip Dorsett, it makes sense that DJ Sharp would also go in the first round. I'm just not sure that the value is there. Uh, but, you know, like in, just in terms of these late risers in general, I'm really leaning on the scouts to kind of tell me the deal, you know, what, what is it about this player that's making him rise so much, and, and are we buying into it? So right now, it seems like the scouts are buying into DJ Shark, so I am uh, certainly paying close attention to where he ends up. Yeah, I, I think part of it is what you think he might be. I don't think he'll ever be a number one. Right. You know, and I, I, I think if you're thinking he could be your Terrence Williams or your, your, or your, 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 your Dante Moncrief, yes. You know, I'm all on board for that. You know, just, I just, some of the things that we sort of talk about with Josh Allen, who we'll get to in a little while, once again, I keep talking about people looking at a guy and saying, oh, that guy looks like what I think a, an ex-receiver looks like. And he, mm-hmm. looks, he looks the part. He's 6'3 three and 3 quarters or whatever and 207 pounds and he can run and, and all that. And the LSU thing definitely helps because people have sort of, once again, scouting the helmets, people have told themselves, well, it worked out for Beckham and it worked out for, you know, for, for Landry. But, you know, what did, how did it work out for early Doucette? I mean, you know, you, you, you have to be careful about scouting the helmet, right? Uh, I love Josh Reed, who was super productive, actually, when he was at LSU. But he was one of those guys who was born maybe nine years, eight years, maybe too early. 
he was a guy who was a made-to-order slot receiver just before the slot receiver golden era began, right? So if he had been born just a few years later, I think he would have had a radically different career because he really couldn't play the X or the Z. He was a guy that was pretty much relegated to the slot, and he hit the league when that was not necessarily a great thing to be. Nowadays, there are several teams where the slot is their number one receiver. I mean, number one in terms of production, at least. You know, the guy who's getting the most balls, uh, you may not think of him as the number one because he may not be six foot four and turn 15 pounds. He may not look like Julio Jones. He certainly doesn't look like, you know, like Megatron. But Julian Edelman, you know, or we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, obviously a lot is going on with the Patriots. But I won't be shocked at all if Julian Edelman goes right back to being the number one, at least in terms of market share, goes back to being the number one receiver in in New England. Partially sure. because of the, you know, the Vulcan mind meld that he has with Tom Brady, which in their system matters much more than being big, strong, and fast. Though it never hurts to be big, strong, and fast. If you can do what Tom Brady needs done the way Tom Brady wants it done, that's really the most important thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, can Shark for you be like a can – can he be Tory Smith for you? You know, can he at least be like a, you know, professional lid lifter, right? Like just make the safety respected, yeah. you know, clear stuff yeah. out for your offense. Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, I'm entirely convinced he can do that. I just don't have a second-round grade on him, which I've seen – some people trying to do. I I just can't make myself do it. I just you know I I I I, I studied a lot of his tape. I, I try to I know a lot of the well, the quarterback situation, blah 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 blah. But I doubt that people always trying to talk up Danny Atley. You know, so well which is it? <laughs> it can't be like either Atley is terrible and that's the reason why that hasn't been productive or Atling is better than you think, and he's been let down by a supporting cast. But it can't somehow be both. No, I'm definitely up over that. I mean, like, that's the weird thing. The thing that I don't understand is that, like, teams still haven't figured out that, like, they can't overvalue some of these athletic qualities. Or, you know, like you were saying before, like, the guys who look like they should be great players but, you know, haven't really proven that they're great players. Like, these guys go high in the draft, I feel like, every year. I mean, just a year ago – John Ross went in the top ten and then didn't play as a, as a as a rookie. Like that's just a crazy misuse of of draft capital. I feel like like I, yeah, I'm with you. Like I think Shark in a perfect world should go in like the third round of the draft, but because teams like just are wildly overvaluing like yes, those kinds yes. of guys. Yes, like I get excited about him around pick 104. That's where I start <laughs> to feel he's a shark, quite frankly. Right. Yeah, and I think there's a lot. I mean, that's so that's 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 what we call right, like the measured take, right? But it's like I don't know, like these teams just way oversell on the, you know, way overbuy on these on these receivers. I don't understand. Well, it, it, here's the thing: there are certain positions where getting the freak athlete, even if he has them is super super productive, makes more sense. And maybe the position where that makes the most sense might be tight end. Oh, yeah. That seems to be sort of the one position where a guy who's been so, so productive, but, you know, his production is not horrible, but it's not mind-boggling, but he's a super-duper freak athlete. Now, there's none of those in this class, that class, though. There's no super freak. He's actually as close 
but he's not super strong. Um, like Greg Olson was almost as athletic, but was physically strong. The and of course you may you may have read this. Uh, Jim Coburn has been doing a study on the distress, and it's been steadily going down on the tight end. So each class has been weaker than the last. Um, so there's a physical strength. This is the weakest um, tight end draft class on record, at least as far back as the, the official combine numbers have been kept. I can see that. I mean, these guys, were, it's like, uh, I don't know how much you follow basketball, but it's like in basketball now, everyone just wants to shoot threes, right? Like no one wants to, no one wants to learn like how to do all the dirty stuff on the inside. It's like, yep. you know, these tight ends, they see Gronkowski, they see Kelsey, and now, you know, they don't want to be in the weight room getting bigger and stronger and learning how to block. All they want to do is get flexed out and, and run routes and do all that stuff. So I, I think that, that, you know, that makes sense. Every, every tight end prospect puts ducks on their highlight reel nowadays. You know, they don't show up with the blocking sled. You know, I hit a three-minute sled. And, you know, <laughs> that's how I do my highlight reel. <laughs> you know, it's funny because the game, that's where one of the greatest changes in the game has taken place. And it's funny because when Tony Gonzalez hit the league, the great knock on him was he wasn't a very good blocker. And did he improve slightly? But what changed was the other tight ends around him. So by the end of his career, he was considered a pretty good blocker, but not because he'd gotten so much better, because he always had gotten so much worse. Mm-hmm. So they, came to, they sort of came to meet him. It's all, about, uh, it's all about context, right? Yes. Oh, yes, it is. And so for the tight end class, I have I sort of break it into two. You know, you've got your what I call full-service tight ends. Now, there's no Jason Wittens in the whole class, in my opinion, at least. There's no Greg Olson anywhere in the whole class. There's no Gronkowski's anywhere in this whole class. Uh, you might have yourself, I mean, if everything goes right and Jazeki sort of toughens up a little bit, Kelsey. But Kelsey wasn't a first-rounder, people. You know what I mean? If you're projecting Jazeki into the – you're ignoring the fact that the guy he might be – Everything goes perfectly. Hello? Hello? Not sure if this cut out or dropped or what. Okay, not sure what this took place there, but uh, <laughs> I was just saying that I don't dislike Zetsky, but I hear some people trying to push him into the first, like 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 the sense of throw him first into the first, as if there's some sort of rule that we have to have a tight end take this first. Like somehow the world won't continue to spin on its axis if there's no tight ends in the first round. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I don't like. I think you were kind of saying this before it cut out. Like, Gasicki is like maybe he's Travis Kelsey, and you know, Kelsey was a guy who wasn't even really a natural tight end. Like, he, he came in as a you started out as a quarterback in college, and then he ended up becoming tight end. So, uh, a lot of a lot of things he had to learn there. I think to kind of make that progression. So we'll see with Gasicki. I mean, I think. He probably belongs in the second round. I'm sure he'll end up going towards, like, the back end of the first because that's just kind of how these things work. Uh, I do obviously really love the measurables. I mean, they are outside of the bench. He really was a, a complete freak show at the combine. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that, you know, translates it translates into more production than it's been at Penn State. I was a little concerned that he didn't get, you know, quite the, the same usage as you'd expect. But, you know, of course, when you have Saquon Barkley on your team, it's, it's hard to kind of demand the ball. running backs out of the first round just because they're running back. 
which a lot of people do just because <laughs> because they're running back. We can't draft running backs early because we don't do that anymore. Remember when we said we stopped doing that? We all agreed to not do that anymore. Uh, so if you're if you're willing to to draft guys who are really good, even though they play a position that no that people don't respect or whatever, but I have at least two two interior, maybe three interior offensive linemen in the first round. Will Hernandez to me is a first rounder all day long. Uh, if, if I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know which more you'd be looking for from a guy like Will Hernandez to, to keep him out of the first. He's been a dominant player for two straight years. Two straight years of the tape, he is mashing people, mashing them. You see guys kind of give up sometimes for the ends of games against him. Like, oh come on, man, we gotta keep doing this. You know, I mean, he, you could see guys not want any more of Will Hernandez. They've had enough sometimes, and even against bigger schools. There's guys who don't want any parts of Will Hernandez. So if putting Nelson is up here, I don't see a huge gap, actually. I think there's a gap, but I don't think it's a huge gap. I think if 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 we're talking about maybe a future Hall of Famer in, in Nelson, we're talking about a guy who's going to go to probably four or five Pro Bowls in, in Will Hernandez. So if you're, if you're not prejudiced against certain positions, yes, there are enough great positions. <laughs> Now, some people are prejudiced because they're Some people say, well, we can't take a safety high, or we can't take a, an interior linebacker high, or whatever. You're one of the people that just doesn't believe in taking certain positions in the first round because, because. I mean, that's really all it is, just because. You know, there's no, you know, you, I'll take a great player over, who plays a, quote, unquote, less valuable position over a mess player who plays a premier position because I need great players. You know, I just, I'll take whatever I can get when it comes to greatness, and then I'll worry about finding another player at that other position, you know, at some other point in the draft, or I'll find him in free agency, or I'll trade for him. There's other ways to find guys if you can't find, quote, unquote, premium positions. So I think if you're willing to take wide receivers who have been great, even if they weren't physically free in the first round, you're going to have no trouble filling your first round with players. Now, that all comes down to, well, let's work through the wide receivers. You do pay a lot of attention to those. Who are the wide receivers, in your mind, that are productive enough and tested well enough, you know, at least getting a certain threshold, so at least you could make an argument for them being in the first round? Oh, I mean, DJ Moore is the top of that list for me. I, I'm in complete, completely enamored with DJ Moore. I mean, incredibly young breakout age, broke out before he was 20 years old at Maryland. Final year adjusted dominator rating of 53.2%. So really checks all the boxes for me. You know, the scouts are buying into. He's ranked second on NFL draft scouts. So DJ Moore for me is, is absolutely a first-round talent. Um, you know, I think that Calvin Ridley is hotly debated. I think that he certainly didn't test great. Um, he's a little older. But everyone that watches Calvin Ridley play, I feel like, you know, thinks that he has what it takes to be a quality NFL wide receiver. Um, even if it's not as a true number one, I think that it seems it seems like a lot of people feel like he is going to be very safe, you know, high floor kind of guy. Uh, so he will probably go in the first round. And I think that I think that at least one, if not both, of Christian Kirk and Cortland Sutton are going to end up in the first round as well. I mean, Kirk was. Kirk is probably more of like your prototypical slot guy. I think he has some speed and Allen to his game. Uh, but, again, another young player that broke out at the age of 
just 20, you know, and in an early 20 at that, 20.1 years of age, uh, and really was outstanding, not just in the receiving game, but also in the return game for Texas A&M. Uh, Cortland Sutton, I, I mean, once he made that position change from defensive back to receiver, you know, completely dominated at SMU. His production took a small step back this year just because of the addition of Trey Quinn. And, you know, I think Trey Quinn in his own right, you know, obviously a former five-star prospect. Uh, definitely some competition there for Sutton, but, you know, Sutton was, has been so dominant. And his agility at his size, I think, is really impressive and definitely leads me to believe that he's going to uh, at least be worthy of a first-round selection. I'm positive he'll go there. But So I think that you really have four guys. You know, Moore, Ridley, Kirk, and Sutton, I think those are probably the four that I'm looking at as first-round picks. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to agree with you. I think all four of them go in the first. And as a wild card, I won't be shocked if James Washington cracks the, the bottom of the first as well. I won't be shocked. I'm, I'm not going to quite predict it, but it's one of those things where some people go, wow. If it happens, I'm not going to go, wow. You know, I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I will not be shocked. Some people will probably be. I will not. I think he has a, I'll say a 33 and a third. I think he has a, a one in three chance of going in the first round. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I mean, you want to talk about a guy who makes long plays happen. I mean, 226 career receptions and a 19.8 career yards for reception. He's the only player to ever do that. So, you know, really impressive, really impressive consistent ability. There's one guy, and he's the guy on Say that again. I was saying, he, the list, you know, 220 plus receptions, 19 plus yards per, per catch is one guy, and he's the one on it. He's the list. Right. Yeah, I was just simply echoing what you said. And normally when guys have that number like he has, it's guys like Calvin Johnson. It's guys who play in sort of like a, an offense where the ball is thrown rarely, and when it is, the defense is sort of not expecting it. Everyone knows they're throwing the football, and everyone knows, you know, it's going either to here or Aitman. And I think, for some reason, some people don't give it enough credit, frankly, for being as good as it is, for reasons I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, I think that but, I think that some people thought that he was going to test better athletically. Like, I, I think that because of the the way he produced, I think people thought that maybe he was just gonna completely blaze the combine and, and run like in the four fours. And, I mean, he's not, he's not that kind of guy. He's built like a running back. I mean, he's 5'11", 213. You know, so for his for him to run, you know, in the four fives, I think that's accessible for him. That's, he's, a, he's a guy that I think is, is still going to be able to produce with that athleticism. Yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, if you think he's going to be able to you know, Deshaun, Deshaun Jackson, you're, I don't know if you've been watching, but if you think he's a faster version of Juju Smith-Schuster, you know, now he might be talking. Right. Yeah, I'm definitely on board with that. I th- I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic on Washington. I can definitely buy that. I mean, even if he goes in the second round, if he goes in the second round, he's probably going to, you know, a favorable position. I mean, we saw guys like Allen Robinson, Marquise Lee, like those guys went in the second round, and you know, they ended up being productive. I mean, Allen Robinson just got paid a ton of money to go play for the Bears. Marquis Lee got paid a ton of money to stay with the Jaguars. Like, those guys can still be good players. So, I'm, I'm hopeful on James Washington. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think he's going to be a good player wherever he ends up as well. I'm just saying, don't be shocked if he ends up cracking the bottom of the first. That's all I was saying. Yeah. 
I know I won't be. I'll put it that way. It will not be a wow moment for me if he shows up in Boston. Um, now, here's the other thing that I see happening. I see there being a run on corners. Now, you see you don't spend a lot of time on that side of the ball, but amongst the corners, I think, will go somewhere in the first, include the, uh, well, Denzel Ward, Jair Alexander. Uh, a lot of people are, are very high on both of them, and they, they tested well um, to some extent, you know, ran fast, jumped high, things like that that people like. Uh, but... Mike Hughes is a, from UCF is a guy, though he didn't test quite as well, has a legitimate shot at going somewhere in the, in the probably the second half of the, the first. And I, I'm one of those people that think there might be as many as five corners in the first. I, I won't be shocked looking in. I think there's going to be no fewer than four, and I think there's even a chance at five. So in terms of one, it depends on how you, what you think Mika Fitzpatrick is. He was a guy that played the star slash nickel role throughout his collegiate career, so it's a hybrid role. And if you think he's going to be an outside corner and just sort of walk out there and be Jalen Ramsey, you're going to be sorely disappointed, I think. If you think he's a guy who will play some safety for you, particularly if you go into your, your big nickel as a third safety, I think he'll do well in that. He could be a dime linebacker. He could be your slot corner. He's an interesting prospect, but he's not he's not any one thing, any one thing the way that some guys are where you just walk them out there, set them down at this in position and they go out and just spot off the chill it, playing with one position all the time. That's not really what he is in my philosophy. And even some conversations. I mean when people talk to him about how he sees himself. He always brings up you know he's a much bigger player, he always brings up guys like Calron Matthew, you know, he he doesn't compare himself to the great safeties or the great, you know, outside. He doesn't bring up Mike Haynes or, you know, Rod Woodson, you know. <laughs> he talks about guys who are more like him, guys who are little hybrid guys, you know, the, the jokers on defense are the guys that he brings up when he talks about himself in terms of comparison. And I think he's right. <laughs> what <are you> doing? <laughs> if a guy tells you what he is, maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe he's yeah, I mean, all, all the reports on Minka Fitzpatrick say that he's, like, fo- like the football savvy, football IQ levels are, like, through the roof. Like, Saban loves yeah. him. That the only guy that Saban, like, will actually talk about defense with, you know, like. So that's, that's good. I, I'm, I'm in on that. <laughs> yes. Right, right. So I'm, I'm a fan of his. I just don't think people who are just calling him, well, he's my number one free safety one. Or, you know, he's my number two corner. Like, it's... Right. You almost, you almost have to put him in a separate category, but I think he's in the first round. Uh, no matter what category you put him in, I don't think. I know. I know he's in the first round. I know he's in the top ten. Uh, other guys I would talk in that pile. I mean, there's going to be a run. That's my prediction. A run of corners. So even some of the corners that people think are second rounders, once again, I won't be shocked. We see some of them the bottom half of first because it's a position where especially nowadays you need you need three excellent corners and then one good one if you want to have a good defense. What was one of the secrets to how those people can exactly, you know, throw a blanket over the Patriots? But one of the secrets was their death on in their defense secondary. That means teams go on tempo, right? This is not nineteen eighty three anymore. Uh, a lot of teams are going to throw out a play then, and the Patriots are amongst those teams that will go up tempo, especially when they're 
moving the ball and get back to the advantage. And I'll just speak from my own experience. When you play defense at back, especially if you see that throws the ball, you get you get tuckered out. You know, you're gonna you're gonna get tired. And when you get tired you make mistakes. Right? The the great Liz Lombardi quote is fatigue makes cowards of us all. So Oh yeah, I definitely buy that. <laughs> so if you can't throw out three really good and then maybe another couple of pretty good corners, they're going to find the guy who isn't pretty good and they're going to pick on him. They're going to make his life a living hell because that's what happened to the Eagles early on. They had one guy who was clearly being targeted and it happened to both directions. Each team found the weak spot in the other team's secondary and went at that guy specifically. Whoever that guy's got, that's where we're going with the football. And so if you have, even going into what used to be backups, right? Nowadays, you know, these guys are backups. I mean, your nickel is a starter now. Your dime back is playing 30-some-odd, 40, 35, 40% of the staff. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that guy's basically a starter for you. Darn close, yes. So your, your Sam linebacker, however, might be a guy that's you know, misses snap. Uh, so it's interesting how that has changed. The Sam linebacker was, was sort of a, almost a glamour position. I mean, glamour, but it was a really important position. You know, guys like Bill Romanowski, if you could name some of the top Sam linebackers, they were kind of big names at one point. You know, now, you know, who's the best Sam linebacker in football? Maybe Chase. You know, but it's no longer, it's not as sexy a position as it used to be, I guess. Uh, and some teams don't care kind of who their Sam linebacker is anymore. I mean, I'm, I, I'm exactly, I don't mean to care, but because they have five or six DBs in the field so much, their Sam linebacker is, though he's announced as a starter, he's almost not a Because he's coming off the field for them. Yep. Passing league now, right? We gotta get we gotta get more skilled guys on the field and less uh, less big guys. That's whatever we want to do right now. So that's what everybody's doing. They're, they're making they're trying once again. The whole game is about finding guys who are uncomfortable in space and making them be in space. That's that's the whole that's the whole game now. Who's uncomfortable in space? Oh, that guy. Well, let's make him be in space. See how let's see, let's see how he likes it. So in that in this new world in which we all live. You know, anybody at almost any position. I mean, we've had some actual down linemen um, on defense. Are they going to find some somebody to make you be a space and then hurt your feelings? But getting back to the corner class, and like I said, I know it's not your your, your strength, but I'm going to throw out some of the guys. I think Joshua Jackson is a guy that cracks the bottom half of the first. Mike Hughes is a guy that you know, I'll be surprised if he isn't late in the first. And then. Obviously, we talked about Jared Alexander. We talked about Denzel. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think look at a slam dunk first rounder. I think Derwin James is not a slam dunk first rounder, but I don't think he gets out of the top 10 to 12 picks. Uh, so, a lot of defensive backs. I think somebody will reach on some of the defensive linemen. Vita uh, Bea is a guy that isn't super productive but is big and strong and fast, so somebody will probably take him early. Maurice Hurst is a guy that, depending upon what a team, how scared a team is about his medical condition, I could see him still staying in the latter part of the first. 
obviously anyone who looked like they might be able to rush the passer at a high level is going to go somewhere in the first. So Marcus Davenport, as raw as he is, but when you look like Marcus Davenport, you test like Marcus Davenport, you're going to be a first-rounder down here. Uh, Arden Key is an interesting test case because he, he had, his tape was not good this year, and then he didn't test well. That's a bad combination. Oh, yeah. I think he's out of the first. Oh, and one last corner. Um, I think the, the guy who has a chance to do that last corner in the – or maybe not the first last, but he's, I think he's somewhere in the first. He's Isaiah Oliver from Colorado. I think he finds his way somewhere in the first. That's a lot of – so that's – we named the, your, the guys that you think are going to play wide receiver are going to find their way in the first. And we think whether he deserves it or not, one of the tight ends probably second may find his way in the first. Um, I think – Probably three running backs are probably in the first. And who knows, there might be another one cracked. That obviously a bunch of quarterbacks can go. Probably five, uh, whether it makes sense or not. <laughs> the first. Uh, so, how many players is that now? Let's see. Uh, four wide receivers, five quarterbacks, five corners, at least two safeties. That's Seventeen plus four. We're at twenty. Is that twenty-one now? Yes, that's pretty good. We haven't even covered some of the positions yet. So we haven't gotten to linebackers, where Lake Vanderesh and uh, Tremaine Edmonds and Wilfon Smith and possibly even Rashawn Evans, right? So that's twenty-five. If, if all four of those linebackers go, Kevin Bryan. As I mentioned, first and Vea, um, uh, so three interior linemen go. That's up to 28, and there's gonna be a run on on tackles because offensive tackles are hard to find. So Connor Williams, uh, McGlinchey, Colton, Colton Miller, and McGlinchey are almost guaranteed, right? So, right? So we're we're almost up to 32 already. And there's all positions we haven't gotten to yet. So if you toss in the running back, yeah, okay, so yeah, so running back, one tight end, wide receivers, um, oh, two guards, right? I think two guards go. So yeah, right, we did it. We got our first round already. There we go. If, if, if Nelson and Hernandez go in the first, I think they both will. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it won't be difficult. To, to find 32 players to take in the first round. Um, now, some teams will probably take guys in the first round who don't belong there, but that happens every year, as we talked about as well. Uh, I think that it's entirely possible that some team does something crazy like reaches on Lorenzo Carter, or uh, some team reaches on Justin Reed, or some team reaches on them. You know, some teams, teams do things. Things happen. So I won't be shocked if one or two of the guys I named don't go in the first Sunday to who would the price be do go there. It happens every year. But either way, I don't think it's that hard to find 13 guys. Now, in terms of just production, a couple of quarterbacks, well, one in six in production don't belong. But you already the six, you think, and the guy that most perfectly picks me is Let's talk about the quarterback. Um... I mean, instead, you don't spend a lot of time on the smaller school quarterbacks, so I guess I'll just keep it to the guys at the FBS. So, do you all 
sort of look at some of the guys in the SBS who are really doing well in terms of production, but don't get all the all the attention, like the Logan Woodside of the world. Yeah, I like Woodside. I <laughs> kind of he's like he's the he's an attractive sleeper for me. I feel like in this class, really efficient college career. Uh, obviously, he's going to go uh, a lot later than you know some of these other players just because he's smaller. You know, six two, two ten, not really ideal size. So he's going to get things for that. But if you average over nine yards per attempt your last two years in college football, I feel like that you know you have a pretty good chance of being a decent player. So maybe it has a long term backup. Maybe he ends up you know sneaking in as a starter somewhere as a spot starter. You know, a bridge guy. Like, but I feel like you know Logan Woodside at least belongs on the roster. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I watched Andy Dalton's entire career at Texas Christian, and I watched Logan Woods' entire career at Toledo. I think Logan Woods has a better prospect than Dalton was. Now, he didn't play as, at his prominent program. TCU was sort of in its golden age. He played on a New Year's Eve bowl game, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, matched up against Russell Wilson, all that good stuff. But... I don't understand what people just other than the fact that he doesn't have a quote unquote cannon for an arm, you know, the old cannon for an arm thing. Um but which comes into play, you know, probably eight percent of the throws you make in a season. But the the things that lots of successful number quarterbacks do in the offenses in which they're in, like what is Alex Smith doing? What is can he do the things that I mean, how is he different from Kirk Cousins? Right? I mean, there's a whole bunch of successful NFL quarterbacks who do what he does or have done with I mean, he's a bigger, stronger version of Kate Keenum. I mean, Kate Keenum did a lot of those same things, but smaller. You know, he, I mean, Kate Keenum was six feet and, what, one quarter and 206 pounds? I mean, he's, he's got enough. And, I mean, if you're six foot two, you're more than tall. Yeah, I mean, you're there because they're not as if it wasn't for the prejudice against shorter quarterbacks, it would be more shorter quarterbacks, but another show for that. But the, the fact is that, I mean, 6'2 is plenty. You know, uh, ask, 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 you know, hey, somehow Aaron Rodgers has managed to muddle through at 6'2. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm I'm definitely team height is overrated at quarterback. I mean, Russell Wilson, Drew Brees, you mentioned Rodgers. Like, you don't have to be 6'5 and, and, you know, have the rocking arm, like, because teams know, like coaches understand how to move the pocket for these guys. It's not like they have to. It's not like they have to drop straight back and look directly over like these six foot six tackles. And it's not like these tackles are ever standing straight up. Like it's like they're pick setting and they're they're not. You know they're bent over and they're doing all their stuff. You know the quarterback, a guy that's six foot two, knows how to get the throwing lanes for him. You know, like exactly. That's thing that blows my mind is people act like you're throwing over. The linemen. Well, you shouldn't be. And it, that's what gets guys like Osweiler in trouble. There was a year where Brock Osweiler was number two, number three. He was up near the top in, in passes batted down at the line of scrimmage. He's six foot seven, people. So right. It, 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 like, it, it isn't what prevents you from being passes knocked down. It's awareness that prevents you from being your passes knocked down. You know? And he's a guy who's. I'm not going to be seen, but Brock Osweiler's not. His awareness has been turned up to 11. Let's just leave it at that. Things occasionally slip past him. And Drew Brees probably has never had a year 
where he's led the league in passes batted down, despite the fact that he's barely six feet tall. Because he knows, as you just pointed out, how not to get a six batted down. He wasn't six foot five until a certain age, and then he lost five inches. He's always been this height, and he knows how to be this height. If a guy is killing it, and he's 5'11 inch change, or, you know, 5'10 and 5'8, so, you know, or in the case of even Dust Booty, 5'9 and 3'8, he's figured out how to play quarterback at that height. He's worked some things out. He might have to work even harder to figure some of those things out, but he's figured it out. He's figured some way to not have 30% of his balls batted back at his face, right? I mean, it's, it's something he's already worked out. He knows what he's doing. Now, the NFL will always have some level of pressure against short quarterbacks, obviously, but it's less and less logical as we see quarterbacks, not even only in the same types of offense, but in various types of offense. There's obviously a lot of them are West Coast offense guys, but there's even some guys who, you know, push the ball down the field who aren't, you don't have to be six or five to have a strong arm. Um, like the two that always go together. You know, I've seen some big quarterbacks. I mean, Dick, nope, I'm not here to pick on Dan Olofsky, but Dan Olofsky's a big guy, and people sort of assume he had a big arm. I watched Dan Olofsky's pro day, people. He did have a big arm. Yeah, but, yeah, okay arm. You know, he could, he, he could just, you know, he could just get the ball there on the, on the foot of a big arm throw. The ball would get there, but it was just to get yeah, and I, I feel like. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say like I, I just feel like, and I feel like a lot of that is kind of overblown anyway. Like you were saying, like the only about like eight percent of the throws you make at the next level even require like that next level arm strength. It's almost like you just have to have above. It's like it's like you got to have above a certain level, but you don't have to be all the way up, right? Like if you're you're like creating a player in Madden. Like you don't have to have ninety nine throw power. Like eighty five will do. You know, you just can't have like sixty. I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of where we're at with with throw power being important. Well, it's interesting to note that the guy that everybody agrees is the best arm in the league now. If you look at his scouting reports, once again, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, Aaron Rodgers was being cut, and I was at the draft when Aaron Rodgers was selected, and got to talk to him a little bit. One of the things that was questioned, believe it or not, was his deep, was his deep ball velocity. Believe it or not, go back and look at the scouting report of the era. That was actually something that was questioned. Now, it seems laughable now, but people talked about how he was an assistant that, quote-unquote, manufactured quarterbacks and made them look better than they were. I love that. Well, if somebody could literally figure out a way to make quarterbacks look good, who weren't good, wouldn't everybody be doing it? They'd all be doing the same thing. He would think... If somebody had this magic elixir that made bad quarterbacks be able to just go out there and just dice up good defenses, because that's what Aaron Rodgers was doing. Now, he did have a decent supporting pass. I mean, obviously, you know, he had Deshaun, he had Marshawn, and all the Shawns. And, you know, he had an okay offensive line. A couple of those guys went on to, to hang around the league for a little while. Um but, I mean, it's clear that team was sort of about Aaron Rodgers, if you watch them. Uh, even though he had the, the super high ball carriage that, that Jeff Tedford taught to cut down on fumbles in the pocket and some other things that 
you know, made him a little bit mechanical coming out. I, I remember debating people about him and, and saying, you know, well, I mean, those are if those are, those are things that are extremely fixable. Usually, you're trying to get a guy to carry the ball higher. Like, how about, think about easy to lead us to get got to bring it down two and a half inches? Because that's if that's what you're worried about, really. Um, but it's something that people criticize. People went a little bit nuts on it. And I'm not saying that's why Alex Smith went above him, but there was a whole lot of overthink. I mean, people, that's a classic case of overthink, where the guy is the number one quarterback all throughout the season, number one quarterback, you know, throughout most of the pre-draft process. And then somewhere around first, probably the first week, end of February 1st, beginning early part of March, people started the rumor mill, the whispers started. You know, Alex Smith is closing the gap on Aaron Rodgers. I remember all this stuff. Such uh, such team actually has has Smith over Rodgers. Blah blah blah. I, I was there. I was you know I was very involved in in the draft process at the time, and I was writing that we should as as drafters, we should not change our rankings. I was like, look, let them do what they want. We can even change it on our mock draft, but our rankings should reflect who's the best quarterback, the best quarterback in the process. And a lot of times that happens even in this process. So let's go through the quarterback class. So looking one side, I guess I think it's usually underrated. Uh, how about Mike White? Uh, I mean, Mike White I think is okay. I, I definitely think that he has, again, kind of like that long-term backup upside. Uh, but I'm not sure that he is ever going to really be a starter. I mean, he really had the one big year, 2016, Western Kentucky. That was probably his best year, average 10.5 yards per attempt. Uh, but that went right back down to 7.5 yards per attempt in his final year. So, that's, I mean, I'm kind of – I feel like the Western Kentucky system has kind of pounded out, you know, these quarterbacks that end up getting drafted, like Dowdy. Uh, you know, obviously, Mike White will get drafted. So, I, I'm a little skeptical – of the production, um, but it seems like a lot of the stuff that he's done kind of in the draft process has, has led teams to believe that he is at least uh, relatively safe as a guy that can hold your clipboard. Yeah, and that's probably what will end up happening. Now, I know you don't spend much time on, on guys who play below the FBS level. Have you at least taken a look at, at Kyle Lillette? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, uh, well, my buddy played at Richmond, so I got to uh, – so, you know, he had me all over Lauletta. Um, you know, during the year. And, uh, I mean, I like him a lot. <laughs> I think that he's, you know, in terms of the, the sub-FBS guys, like, I, I feel like he is, I'm not saying he's going to be Jimmy Garoppolo, but I feel like he is, you know, in that same ilk as a prospect. Like, he should, he should go in the second round. Uh, he has upside. He was really productive at his level. Um, and I feel like the team around him at Richmond wasn't particularly great. And he was still able to be successful, so I'm definitely buying Lauletta. I I was one of the I guess one of the quote unquote first first people on him, and partially because I grew up in Virginia, I've, I've had connections at various points to the program. One of my one of my friends was a running back there back in the day, doctor. Now now a doctor, but uh, Keith, if you're out there, you know keep keep doing what you're doing. Uh, but yeah, there. There's something to be said for a guy that one improves himself over time. You know, better game by game, year by year. As you watch him, you watch him consistently. You keep seeing him. 
he's making mistakes. He's not making the same mistakes twice and three times in a row. That always worries me when a guy keeps, oh, wow, that guy baited him into that same throw again, huh? I don't like that, you know. But if a guy at least is making different mistakes on tape as I watch him, uh, you know, so at least he's getting to learn new lessons. Uh, that gives me a little bit of hope that there might be something there for him. Uh, also, he's a better athlete, I think, than people, most people realize. And while he doesn't have a quote-unquote cannon, he can make all the throws. You know, he if you need him to make those far hash throws, if you need him to make that, that deep fade ball, he can throw those balls. He can throw all those balls. I think he has good natural accuracy. Uh, I think there's a, a place for him in the league. He reminds me a lot of a kid from Ball State from years ago and Kid Winning, who is now a backup, I think, with the Ravens. And I think he has a chance to perhaps even be better. But very worst case scenario, I think he's a long-term backup in the league. But he's a guy that I think if he lands in the right situation, could be. Uh, do you take any look at Chase Litton as well? Chase Litton, I don't really like that much. I just don't. Uh, I, I mean, Chase Litton is like the kind of guy where I feel like people are have talked about it a little bit, just because I feel like there's not that many guys to talk about. But I mean, seven yards per attempt career, seven adjusted yards per attempt. I feel like you know he struggles a little bit with interceptions. He's never had to be like a uh, a really heavy thrower of the football just in terms of like raw attempts. Uh, completion percentage isn't great. Like, there's not a lot that I love, at least, about Chase Litton. Like, I mean, he's big in terms of, like, his weight. He's, like, 230 pounds. He's 6'6". Six six. You know, he has kind of, like, those things where he looks like a good quarterback, uh, but I'm not I'm not really buying him in, in terms of, like, actually being a good quarterback. Yeah, if, if you're asking me to take a very late flyer on a quarterback, I'm going to take a kid like Lewis Brad even though he's coming from Texas A&M Commerce over a kid like, like listen, and there's some off-the-field stuff with Chase Boogie that you may or may not know about, but, uh, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to decline probably the offer, and there's a, this is a really good class of FCS and Division II quarterbacks. Now, I know you don't have too much time on those guys, but there's, I think three or four Division II and FCS guys have a chance, not in Kyle Lett, who have a chance to, to be backups, to be what Kyle Slaughter is, or perhaps even a little bit more. So it's a really good class, actually, of, of quarterbacks at the, at the lower level. I think that a kid like, a kid like Chris, Chris Bellier at uh, uh, South Dakota is a really good player who's played against a high level of FCS competition and put up good tape against the NDSUs of the world, Played against you know Montana State, played against Montana. These are good programs. Played against uh, obviously you know North Dakota State, as mentioned. Also UND, the University of North Dakota. That whole conference is tough, you know. They're <laughs> a lot of good teams. Um, there's a kid in Ohio Dominican, you know, which is uh, D2 that I really like, named Grant Russell, athletic and strong arm. Uh, obviously Ron has played in a you know an extremely spread system, but so does almost everyone nowadays. You know, there's not too many guys running power eye anymore. Uh, there's not too many guys, uh, you know, running what Namath was running in Alabama. Or, you know, I mean, there's no wing T being run very much anymore. It's, if it's, everybody's running some version of a quote-unquote spread attack. Some are more run first. Some are more throw first. 
you know, some are, you know, spread from the point of even like some of the air raids, they spread the lines, they spread everything. Some are so spread that they spread everything that can be spread, and some are a little less, but they're still, they're still, all offenses are built around, once again, creating those, those stretches, either the vertical stretch, horizontal stretch, or a combination of the oblique stretch, forcing, you know, some poor enforcement safety or will linebacker to cover some of they should be covered. That's what everybody's trying to do. Okay, so now we can get to the, the big guy, the big man. So I'll start with Let's just sort of work away sort of from the bottom to the top. Uh, Lamar Jackson, he's another guy that lots of things have been said about him from the team that sort of surrounds him and his advice him to, you know, his own play to, you know, even people talking about him playing a position. Uh, take me through what you think of Lamar Jackson and, and in terms of the kind of work you do, how does he stack up? I mean, I love Lamar Jackson. I think that what he's done just in terms of like all purpose production is kind of unprecedented. Uh I mean he's been able to carry the mail for for Louisville offensively, not just as a thrower, but obviously as a runner. Now, over two hundred and thirty rushing attempts each of the last two years. He's played in every game, you know, despite having this big workload. So I know that people have kind of mentioned that, you know, he's a little thinner than we'd like. Um, you know, maybe he's not someone that can withstand the pounding of the NFL. I feel like he's already kind of proven that you know, despite what people think about his weight or his BMI, like, he can already, he can handle getting hit, and he knows how to kind of get hit in ways that isn't going to result in injury. So I'm, I think the durability concerns on him are kind of overblown. You know, and then you just have this guy that, that's a dynamic athlete. I know that he hasn't run or tested. He's been trying to focus on, you know, proving that he's just a quarterback. Um, but, I mean, right-handed Michael Vick is definitely in the range of outcomes, and i I think that he's, in some regards, a better passer than Vic was. I mean, Vic obviously was able to get the ball down the field. He had felt like he could just look his wrist and throw the ball through the yard. Um, but I, I feel like Jackson is a little bit better in the shorter and intermediate parts of the field. I, I definitely think that he can run an NFL offense. And I think that if he goes to the right coach, a coach that's willing to utilize kind of all of his skills and is uh, you know, going to kind of mold an offense around him, I, I definitely think that he can be successful. I, I think the two things that matter uh, with him, one is teaching style. Um, he He's a guy that you may not be able to sort of throw a playbook at him and say, go learn this and, you know, I'll see you tomorrow morning and we'll set install. You may need to take a slightly different approach. Well, I think he's capable of learning it in NFL, but I think you may have to be an innovative person in how you teach it. Two, don't Try to don't try to take Secretariat and turn him into a plot horse. Um, I, it would be it would be a tragic waste to tell this guy you got to stop running. You know you can't be doing that. Uh, stay in the pocket. Well, I mean obviously you want him to to learn to win from the pocket, but what, does Roger Staubach become Roger Staubach if he never leaves the pocket? Is Aaron Rodgers become Aaron Rodgers if he never leaves the pocket? I mean the the history of football is filled with great quarterbacks that made great plays from all over the place. From, you know, one of my first favorite quarterbacks is Grant Tarkenton. Once again, a guy I know he's listening to six feet tall said, right next, right next to Grant Tarkenton, he's not six feet tall. <laughs> he's 
maybe 5'11", my guess is like 5'10 and 3 quarters, that he made plays all over the place. I mean, some of the things are almost comical, where you see him sort of going this way and then coming back that way and all that fun stuff. But we've seen successful quarterbacks forever, really. Um, funny. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm going back to Sammy Ball, if you want to, for a guy that was an athletic quarterback and made plays outside the pocket back when the throwing game really was in its infancy at the NFL level. But even then, you know, he knew that he could buy time by getting the heck away from all those guys who wanted to hurt him. Pretty much a simple, you know, thought process. I could stay here and have these guys lay on top of me, or I could go over here and still be able to throw the football down to you. Yep. I don't want a quarterback that's going to choose to be sacked if he can choose not to be. Right. And Jackson's been able to kind of get through, I feel like, these really tight windows, like the, the speed and the burst are, are really evident to me. So why wouldn't you want that guy? Like the, if he can make – if he can turn a, a four-second play into a seven-second play and that lets him find a, a, an open receiver, like why would we want to take that away? Once again, I will refer to my own experience. It is almost impossible to cover. <laughs> I don't care how bad the receivers you're covering are. Things happen. Things break down when they're set and you have to cover for that long. And what happens usually is that they start, because there's a clock in your head, you start looking for the ball, or the ball's not at where's the quarterback. So now you're not really paying attention to the receiver anymore, and oh, oh, wait, oh, no, oh, touchdown. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I I agree that that he won't. This, he isn't for every team. He isn't for every situation because not everybody's gonna know how to use him. But oh boy, having him for a fin if somehow he ends up with the Saints team. Oh, you will ruin the day if Sean Payton gets his hands on him. Oh yeah, that's. Now? I'm excited for that. I hope that that happens. Well, I hope it happens, but I mean, it's bad news for people who have to. Design defense. That's all I'm pointing out. There'll be a lot of, lot of tough nights in the defensive meeting room if that's what happens. Because John Payton will figure out how to make that guy work. You know, he's not wedded to doing it the way everyone says you have to do it. In fact, my only concern is that Sean Payton might get too cute because John Payton occasionally gets too cute. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely guys, possible. Yeah, he's one of those guys that's just a little too impressed with his own ability to scheme up stuff sometimes. But I, I prefer that over some of the guys who, you know, are sort of blocked into doing something the way we do it because that's the way we do it. Okay, so moving up or through or whatever direction uh, the quarterback class. And, you know, we can no longer avoid talking about this young man. Now, first of all, I was one of the early people sort of drawing attention to Josh on, first because I watched, you know, I was actually watching Northern Illinois for a wide receiver named Kenny Galladay a couple of years ago. And I was like, man, who's this big, giant quarterback while he's got? And I was writing about him, like, hey, you know, watch this guy. So I could him to watch him. And I thought he was an interesting talent. I am not. Anti Josh Allen. But 
there's things that I would need to see in terms of growth and improvement over that time that just didn't happen. And I like him, but not in the first or even early in the second. If you want to sell me on him at the tail end of the second or especially, I'm really interested in the third. And let's see if we can make what we can make out of him. But, I mean, he is big. He is athletic. He does have a rare level of arm strength. But, as you mentioned, there comes to a point where, I mean, you're only going to throw the ball 70 yards down the field practically never. And even 60 yards down the field, very rarely. 50 yards down the field, 3.5% of the time. And then there's some of those, you know, big arm throws where you've got to, you know, but if you that's you, part of that is only necessary if you don't anticipate things well, which that's what it's not. But let's walk through him. Um, what do you notice when you watched him, and what does the data tell you when you look at his career? Yeah, I mean, the ball obviously flies off, flies out of his hand, but I mean, it's really inconsistent in terms of where it lands, right? I mean, if you look at his bowl game, right, in the bowl game, he was amazing. Like, the ball, the ball, he fit into some really tight windows. He threw some really nice balls down the field. He threw some nice balls to the end zone. But then you watch, you know, some of the other games, and it's just a, it's a complete it's a complete 180. Like, throwing the ball at double coverage, not throwing the ball to the right guy, you know, kind of running around too long, trying to extend the play too much. Like, he has a lot of flaws, and he has a lot of inconsistencies. And I'm really worried about the fact that his career completion percentage is 56.2. It's really bad. Uh, you know, you talk about some of the guys that have been, you know, quote-unquote successful who haven't hit the 60% mark in terms of completion percentage. We're looking at, you know, Matt Stafford, who was really young at the time. You know, Matt Ryan, who was playing with probably one of the worst teams I've ever seen in the SEC. Uh, Jay Cutler, who was kind of a mixed bag in terms of the NFL. So, I mean, and, you know, this, these guys at least all play at major programs. You know, Josh Allen was doing this at Wyoming. So, I'm really concerned. I mean, 6.7 yards per attempt really isn't going to get it done for me. Uh, I'm certainly selling. I'm definitely in the camp that he should be going much later. But he's going to end up going to the top five and all said and done. So. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of feel like someone who has that, like, you know, those few movies about the person who has a dream of this terrible tragedy but can't talk people into. I'm telling you, you know, if we don't evacuate, people are going to die. You know, it's sort of like that where you keep having this recurring dream and you're talking to the mayor of the city. Sir, 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 I know it's just my dream, but you've got to believe me. And, of course, this isn't just a dream, though. As you pointed out, there are decades upon decades upon decades of quarterback data that can be studied. And you can go back as far literally as, you know, guys like Lynn Dawson, whoever you want to mention, you know, I mean, you go back as far as, you know, the, the, the late 1950s, which is as far back as you can find the NCAA data for quarterbacks. And it is extremely difficult, even when you, like I said, you look through all of the years of quarterbacks, you adjust for the additional, you know, it's easier now to complete passes than ever before in the history of football. This is the era where if you can't complete passes, you would be completing passes. I don't know how else to put it. Like, this is the time to, what a time to be alive if you're a quarterback. Uh, there are guys completing 70, you know, almost 72% of their passes. That, that just couldn't have happened 
even 15 years ago, and you have to go back a million years, that would have been literally unthinkable 15 years ago for a guy to be completing 72, almost 72% of his passes. It would have been just unthinkable. You know, I mean, a guy in 1968 who was at 61% was killing it. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? So the world has changed. But if you can't get to 58%, right, nowadays, something is desperately wrong, and you can't just blame it all on supporting cast because, I mean, we just talked about Lamar Jackson. He has a better case. If that's what you want to do, you want to play the supporting cast game. Watch Lamar Jackson's games, people. That's a guy who's been let down by the supporting cast. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, that poor man. Uh, I totally agree. If that's the game you really want to play, you know, even more so than Josh Allen. Is Josh Allen not playing with a bunch of future, you know, Hall of Famers? Yeah, probably not. But once again, is is Rosen? I mean, like, there's like if we're going to play this game, you got to play it with all of them. You can't share it there. Yeah. You know, who's actually got tremendous supporting him? So maybe Donald. I mean, you know, there's. If you really want to play that, there's no game for that. But you really say, okay, I'm surrounded by great talent. So I love Josh Allen to, to somehow find his way into the 90-something of the draft, where he goes to a team that isn't going to be pressured to play him early. And I mean, if you truly love Josh Allen, don't pray for him to go in the first five picks. Pray for him to go at 95, where he'll run along slowly and he won't be pushed out there to be. Not ready. Yeah, so I'm not anti-Josh Allen. I'm pro-Josh Allen. I want him to be able to succeed. His best chance of doing that because thinking about thinking simply about the guys who have succeeded who have careers like his, they weren't guys who were day one starter types, you know, for the most part. Um, they were mostly guys that he brought on slowly who, who had career production that, that resembled his. You know, I guess, you know, uh, Stafford and Ryan being really the only exception, and both of them were still better than him in terms of their, their total career. Uh, once you look at all of their numbers, you know, not just percentage of completion, but when you factor in yards per completion, yards per attempt, and efficiency, they're, they, they still have an advantage over them. Okay, moving on. Uh, so now we're we're in the the high cot. Uh, let's talk, Mr. Josh Rosen. Um, that's another guy who somehow has been surrounded by controversy for reasons I'm not entirely understanding. I mean, he has a mind of his own. I guess I mean, what it what it comes down to. Uh, a lot of the stuff. This guy is a character concern. He's played through injury. He's been a good leader. He's understands the game at a super high level. So a lot of this whole, you know, whatever it is, whatever. I don't know. Some of it I think is just classic misinformation, and then some of it I think is people blowing out of proportion the fact that he's not a football playing machine. But uh, take me through what the numbers say and your your turn, your kind of evaluation. What does it tell you about him? Yeah, I mean, Josh Rosen is one of the youngest guys to – to be like a significant starter over the last decade or so, you know, started as a true freshman, had a basically a full season under his belt before he was 19 years old. Uh, he's going to be one of the youngest quarterbacks 
that we've seen drafted in a while. Uh, you know, and he was fairly productive, 8.3 yards per attempt in his final season. Uh, completed 61% of his passes for his career. So, I mean, the things that I think that people really like about Rosen is just that the mechanics. You know, people are obsessed with the mechanics of Josh Rosen. He's very clean. He's very precise. I think he's got uh, he's got a little Eli Manning to him in the sense that, like, he's he's kind of just had that big pedigree, and he's always been able to, to live up to it at least enough to maintain the high draft status. Um, you know, I'm not sure if he's ever going to be one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, but I do think that he's going to be probably at least in that next group. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm buying Rosen. I, I actually really like that he thinks for himself, all that stuff. I mean, I think that those are all good things, despite what people say. Um, you know, I've kind of bought into him more probably as the process has gone, has gone on and we've gotten to know more about him just as a person. You know, I, I like I like everything that Rosen brings to the table. Well, personality-wise, I, personality-wise, I agree with you on him. Personality-wise, the guy who reminds me of course is Aaron Rodgers, who also was a guy that thought about a mind of his own. Some people were wild about the fact he had opinions and, you know, <laughs> would sometimes share them. And uh, wanted to know why he did things and, you know, have you ever considered this? He was the kind of guy to show up with notes and suggestions. Yeah, I, 
I've always thought that uh, Rosa would look good as a giant, but I think you can't go wrong with, with either any of any of the top guys. And then that brings, of course, to the fight season, right? He's not quite tall enough, not quite this enough, not quite that enough. But all he does is produce and produce and produce and produce and do it at a historically high level. You know, a guy that you've heard no from so, you know, so many schools coming out of high school, ends up walking on and Texas Tech, beats out a bunch of more talented guys, then decides that you know, he wants to play at a higher level of competition. I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with Baker Mayfield. The, the production is completely off the charts. Over 77, sorry, over 70% completions his last two years. Uh, over nine yards per attempt his last three years. Over 11 yards per attempt his last two. I mean, the production is unreal. Most efficient college quarterback ever. I mean, the only guy that I think is even close to the same ballpark was Russell Wilson in his final year. Uh, so, I mean, what Mayfield has done, you can. We can talk about the Big 12, we can talk about the system, but the bottom line is that nobody has been able to do what Baker Mayfield has done, and you just can't take that away from him. I mean, I, and I love what, what the kid brings off the field, too. I mean, I, I know that people have talked about a couple of the incidents that he's had here and there, you know, is he Johnny Manziel? I don't believe that he's anywhere near the same kind of person off the field that Johnny Manziel is. I think that Baker Mayfield loves football. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, I've, I've seen him hand the ball off to his running back, his running back breaking the second level, and like Baker Mayfield is chasing him 70 yards down the field so that he can celebrate with him in the end zone. Like, this guy loves football, he loves his teammates. Uh, and it's just been completely, completely dominant at the FBS level, at a major school, against major competitions, after walking on twice. I mean, I, there's just, there's nothing to not love. He's my top guy. I'm just, I'm upset. <laughs> Well, here, here we we have a meeting of the mind. I've always rooted for the short guys anyway. I'm a, I was an undersized, even back. I, I played. When I played, I always felt like I had to, you know, basically show somebody, you know, like, okay, you know, sure, if you turn 28 pounds, I didn't bring it over here and let me try to kill you so you'll know, even though I'm smaller and I can't mess with you. Yeah, but there's a chip on your shoulder that you almost always have with your undersized. So, he's clearly got plenty of, of shit. <laughs> he, he's like 70% shit. He, he, he's shit. But what I love most about him is his brain, his thoughts. And a lot of people point out, you know, Josh Allen has a super high, but had a very strong score. But his decision making on a football field terrifying at times. Just terrifying. And I think they did about 18 throws over two seasons. There are places where I go, oh, no, 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 with, with Baker Mayfield. I've done that in one game with Josh Allen. So, I mean, it's, it's almost, as you said, it's almost impossible to compare the two because 
one plays such a different game than the other, but not because the teams are, I mean, yes, the teams are somewhat different, but that's not why the, 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 the two casts are different. The two casts are different because there's a different level of mastery of the quarterback. It's, it's so different. You can't tell me that you can watch both guys back to back and say, this guy actually understands playing quarterback better than this. You must not be watching this. They say, you, if you are truly preferring him, Lower Baker Mayfield, you're not basing it all on the fact on football things, on the things you do on the football. You're basing it on things that you think he might do, maybe, you know, if someone picks everything. But with Baker Mayfield, there's no real no stuff to fix. You know what I mean? Like, he's, you might be just teaching your offense, but I can guarantee you, you won't take a lot to learn your offense. Whatever your offense is. So, I mean, we have to, yeah, address the thing. Okay, so he's barely over 60. Got it. Okay. He's got a little bit of an anger thing. Not just anger. Anger's like a struggle word. But he's, there's a little bit of a different fire that rages within him. I mean, he's a super competitive guy. Super competitive guy. Now, if you don't like competitiveness as a quarterback, then yeah, that's going to turn you off. But Tom Brady is a super competitive guy who will go to his grave remembering where every quarterback in that class is back to the head. I mean, he's also like 70% shit. You know? So if that's something you like, you like quarterbacks that are kind of always a little bit pissed off and everyone who believe in them. And this is your guy. I totally agree. You know, he's still thinking that, you know, Texas and other schools, you know, he, he's still thinking, why did you guys offer me to talk about it? And that's still somewhere in the back of his mind, just like it's still in the back of Tom Brady's mind that the 49ers took Giovanni Carmazzi over there, who is now a ghost farmer. So, when I look at quarterbacks, to me, literally the number one thing in my world is if you're a really bad decision maker, I don't care what else you can do. You could be tremendously athletic, you have a huge arm, a great leader, wonderful guy in the, in the, in the locker room, great in the community, heal the sick, raise the dead. But if you are a really poor decision maker, none of that matters. You're going to lose me more games, you're going to win me. And now I'm getting fired. Now my kids are having to change schools. Now I'm going to go out. So if you can't make good decisions, I'm sorry. I cannot use you, no matter what else you've got going. So if you aren't a great decision maker, you can work around some of the other stuff on the list. You can work around a guy who's not super mobile. You can work around a guy whose arm isn't super strong. You can work around, to some extent, even... Sometimes even a guy whose personality isn't the same. I mean, the first that he had a great personality, but Jake Cutler was in the league. Well, I don't know if he might still be in the league, but he was in the league a long time, people. You know, Jake Cutler was in the NFL a long time. Every single other quarterback is, you know, always the greatest guys personality-wise and the league for a long time. But if you're a really poor decision, and of course Cutler is even shaky in that regard as well, but if you're a really poor decision, no matter what else you have, I just, I'm sorry, right? I mean, I, you can't even be a backup for me if you're really poor decision. I, I need good decisions. I'm 
above everything. Everything. I don't have that. I, I can't do anything. I don't have a, I don't have a team. I don't have an office. But I mean, because I don't, I don't, I can't know that you're going to do the things that we need them. And then, once I get past the decision, then, yeah, act as a team, right? One, I can make a building decision. Two, is the ball going to the right place. Those are, to me, the two most important things. If I can't get the right decision to and if I can't get the ball going to the right place, what are we doing here, right? I mean, what? <laughs> well, what, what are we doing? We can't, we can't have a football team if you can't make the right decision and can't put the ball where it needs to be. And then after that, right, once we get those two things out of the way, uh, then I can start looking at the, the fun stuff, right? The, the stuff that people get excited about, like mobility, arm strength, um, what else would we say? Leadership, right? That stuff is great. I love that stuff. But I can't do anything with it if I don't have the first two things. Decision-making accuracy. Um, when you stack up quarterback qualities, how do you stack them? What's your I mean, I definitely the decision-making obviously is important, like you said. I think in terms of like a statistical profile, I, I want to see you know, quality yards per attempt, just yards per attempt. I want to see uh, quality completion percentage. Those are probably the two things that I think, or three things, I guess, that matter the most to me from a statistical perspective. And then, yeah, like, you know, when you read the, the scouting portfolio and you watch the player, like, you need you need the decision-making. Um, timing is important. And, I, you know, not – I think, like, another part of, of making good decisions is, is being decisive. I don't know if that sounds weird, but, like, it's not good enough to just be able to make the right choice. It's being able to execute the right choice, you know, being able to pull the trigger at the right time. And I think that's, you know, that's something that I, know, I think a guy like Mayfield definitely has. But, you know, that's the difference, I think, between the good players and the great players, just, you know, being able to, to be decisive. Sure. Yeah. I mean, to me, I put decision-making and being decisive together. If you're, if you're taking too long to make the decision, then you – decision will no longer be a good one, right? It can't be right. a good decision because you want to make. Uh, you know, you don't have six seconds. You don't have five seconds. You don't have seven seconds. You, you don't have three seconds most of the time. You have somewhere between one and a half and two and a half seconds to do the thing that's going to be done or the thing will happen. And that, I don't care what offense you run, you know, against whom you're playing, that's true for just about everybody that you have that amount of time to do the thing you're going to do. Now, you pointed out that guys like Michael Vick, Lamar Jackson, Robert Griffin III, to a slightly lesser extent, Colin Kaepernick, those guys can buy themselves more time by being elite level, or can be also, being elite level athletes, or close to elite level athletes, instead of being a thing that has to happen in one and a half, two and a half seconds, five and a second, one and a half, seven and a half, somebody in two seconds. And again, at some point, he can break down and force it to come. So, uh, we'll finish up with I mean, the term sweeper is sort of a loaded term because, you know, I've heard some people call sweepers that everybody has to top 50. So, I guess sweeper means different things to different people. But, basically, the words we see are there players that have been maybe elite or close to elite level productive but aren't getting enough credit. Think of a chance to be good to craft, you think. Oh, I mean, there's a couple guys that I like, but I, 
At the receiver position, I'm a really big fan of Traquan Smith. I think that he deserves uh, a little bit more respect from the scouting community or from the draft community in general. Uh, you know, again, a, a guy that was able to be productive at a really young age, stepped right onto the scene at UCF and, and was productive, and that was a bad program at the time when he got there. By the time he left, you know, obviously that was a team that went undefeated, and he was still a major part of that offense. So I really like Traquan Smith. Um, and, again, at the receiver position, I also like uh, Stephen Ishmael at Syracuse. Didn't get an opportunity to go to the Combine, but, you know, as a four-year player there, was able to uh, kind of step out into the scene, uh, again, as a, as a freshman. Um, you know, and he's kind of, I, I, I guess, faded a little bit as his career has gone on. He's split some time with, you know, a couple other players in the roster. Obviously, they had a transfer, uh, you know, Last season, he was able to take away some of that production, but this year he stepped right back up as the top receiver in the offense. And uh, I think that he's going to make some team happy. He's probably going to go on day three, but I think that he's someone who can eventually become a a part, or at least a you know an ancillary part of an NFL offense. So those those are probably the two guys that I like the most. Uh, you know, Smith is probably someone that's going to go more on like day two. Uh, and then Ishmael on day three. But uh, those are the two guys that I'm buying the most at uh, receiver. Good run after the catch. You go down to the plane going fast, it's 
mine goes to the land that is best case scenario. I think my best case scenario is the best case scenario. I think it's a team that actually, you know, we can find that has a good track record of keeping any back that I can, you know, keep it. You know, it's a team again. What do they actually know what to do with that? They haven't had that kind of thing in a while. Gave them law to their, not necessarily their, because his football career was their life. Uh, he had any baggage, but he was a really good athlete. And once again, a guy who's physically strong. The fact that he's small, he's way stronger than Zuzeki. But uh, like I said, doesn't have the height and, and the weight that you may want. He's a guy you're going to have to have on the move, you know, detached. But he's a guy I think has a chance. And you know, obviously, Anthony Miller. He isn't really a sleeper anymore. I think everybody's pretty much aware of Anthony Miller. Um, you know, a terrific, uh, uh, probably a guy who probably played mostly in the slot, but I think he's going to have a very long stuff career. A guy who is a sleeper and is a big, strong pass with his Orlando Beal. Once again, no most Alcorn State kids who got, you know, snubbed or whatever they used by the, by the NFL at their pro day where nobody showed up. But Wynn had a very good day at the office of Southern Miss's pro day. And Melando is 6'3 and change, 27 pounds, can run, has really good hands. Uh, probably will be on back to free agent, but almost, I can really guarantee he's going to make a team and he's going to make that team. And he's going to start pushing, you know, for, for playing time. He's, he's not just a special teams guy. I think he's going to start to, to make some, some veteran sweat sooner rather than later. Uh, I think he's a guy that has NFL-level talent and simply needs an opportunity, but he has um, he has some good stuff. You know, he's a, once again, smart kid, tough kid, will block downfield, all that good stuff. Uh, some other big type, big receivers, you mentioned lots of consent, but some other big guys include, um, you know, Julio Scott, uh, who's another sort of big body type uh, who has, the ability to you know, jump up in the in the red zone and snag the ball and, you know, be a possession guy. The uh, height, weight, speed, a little more height, weight, jumping ability. He's not super fast, but he's got good leading ability to size, long arms, big hands. Uh, you mentioned Justin Watson from, from Penn. Another guy who's, once again, larger. Decent body control for a guy that size. Not a bad route runner. Not blazing fast, but enough speed that you can, you know, run away from slower guys. You know, he's not going to run away from blazing fast people, but he can run away from some people. And I think he has a chance to be, you know, a better version of a guy like Brian Finneran. Let's see. Sticking with wide receivers. I'm a huge fan of Elijah Mark. I need my chance to watch him yet, but I think he's a major slot guy as well. Uh, Crafty, smart, good hands, not freakishly athletic, but a decent athlete. And you know, we already talked about how people overrate, you know, the pure athletic part of, of wide receivers. There's a lot more to the position. I mentioned Jalen Acklin earlier, so I won't belabor either he or Doris either uh, anymore. I've talked about them enough. Uh, one other sort of tight end slash possession receiver that I'm a big fan of that no one else in the world seems to like. And, you know, who knows? Maybe he won't even end up in a camp, but I hope he does. Andy Shumpert of Furman. And, it's, you know, he's come 
from a, a run a run heavy run first sort of power spread for like we're describing it he but despite the fact he was a tight end he was by far the best receiver on the team uh, could run uh, on you know take off on deep posts and things, things you don't often see tight ends do I mean if you talk about Dallas Goder and uh, and you know he's a good athlete and obviously you know Jacecki but I don't know what Shepard's I don't I have to, I don't I don't have data on Furman's Pro Day, I'll see if I can get some. But I'd be shocked if Shumpert wasn't at the very least in the um, – if he's over 472, 473, I'll be shocked. I think he's probably under that. Uh, he's a skinny tight end. He's probably in his low 220s. Uh, but once again, we talked about sort of the, the trend. You know, you don't see too many 255, 250-pounders anymore. There's, these guys, there's a sprinkling of them. But he's kind of a skinny – for tight end, skinny guy, but good, really good hands, really good speed, uh, at least based on tape, and I'll have to see if I can get his actual testing numbers. Uh, let's see. Oh, running back. There's a, we could do a whole show on sleeper running backs. Jordan Wilkins at Ole Miss, Jeffrey Wilson at, uh, at um, North Texas. Uh, we talked a little bit about Chase Edmonds already. We talked a little bit about, oh, Boston Scott at Louisiana Tech, uh, Martez Carter at Grambling, Trent Cannon at State. I mean, there's so many ones. <laughs> um, oh, uh, Owens uh, from, um, not Owen Swanson, sorry, uh, Terry Swanson from um, Toledo. Uh, Oh, Royce Freeman. I mean, here's a guy at one point was the consensus RB1. Um, I guess we'll close out with him, the, the long, strange career of Royce Freeman. Here's a guy that was, at one point was sort of the consensus RB1. I remember everybody loving Royce Freeman, and now he's a guy that I see most people projecting into the fifth round. Uh, what, what do you think of Royce Freeman, and, and do you think he's at this point even undervalued? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely buying. He has... Agility and a big, you know, agility and a big back is something that I always like. He has that, um, you know, he has been able to dominate touches, you know, as a runner in that offense. He's been able to be productive as a receiver. Uh, and he's been very efficient, over six yards per attempt and over 10 yards per reception in a couple of his seasons. Uh, that's definitely something that I that I think has kind of proven to be uh, predictive of future success. So I'm definitely buying Roy Streamer. I think he's got... You know, again, I'm not, he's not Le'Veon Bell, not to be able to get, do the Le'Veon Bell things in, like, the slot. But I think as a as just, like, a runner, I think he definitely has some Le'Veon Bell to his game. Yeah, I've heard people try to bring up people like Kerryon Johnson and Le'Veon Bell. You know, I've had the same reason. I've had to sort of say, eh, I don't see that ability to run up and catch the ball that, that Le'Veon Bell has, has, has shown. Uh, now, I was... And Donald Johnson is another sort of interesting conundrum. Here's a guy that everybody talks about as an elite speed back. Now, once again, I know he's nursing a bad hamstring, but his testing looks more like a guy with above average as opposed to elite speed. And once again, you know, we'll see if that was just the hamstring. There have been some whispers about him, you know, maybe not being the most mentally accommodating. I don't know whatever term you want to use. Uh, that he hasn't always been super easy to to approach or 
super easy to, you know, to, to get to do certain things in terms of scouts asking you to, you know, maybe it's just because his hamstring was 100%, but he apparently turned down certain drills, certain things. I mean, who knows about that. But uh, what do you, before we leave, I mean, Ron Johnson was another guy some people had as their RB1 at one point. Where are you on him? Uh, he's still in my top five, but I'm just I'm cautious. You know, like you said, um, we're not sure what his test of athleticism is because he probably isn't healthy. Uh, but obviously he was able to really dominate on the ground. Does at least look like he has good speed. We'll see how fast he ends up really being. But uh, his stock has, I guess, been dropping, if anything. But still probably a top five guy for me. Uh, okay, I lied. There's two of them. <laughs> There's so many running backs. Uh, Echo Wiley and John Kelly are, are guys that people have sort of in the same tier, uh, middle round backs. For you, how would you differentiate between the two of them? I mean, obviously they're different body types, but I mean, in terms of what they bring to the table, in terms of what they might be as NFL backs, and, you know, if you have a preference, how do you feel about those guys? John Kelly and who? Uh, Akram Wadley. Oh, okay. Um, and this this is it because I really got I I do have to get going after this. Um, but uh, John John Kelly I think is a far better player. I mean, Akram Wadley was I feel like kind of pedestrian at Iowa. I mean, certainly he was able to to carry a load, but I don't think that he is. I don't think overall, you know, down one through three, he's a guy that you're going to want to lean on. I, I think his upside probably is going to end up ultimately being as uh, you know, that change of pace receiving that at the next level. I do think that Kelly is someone that could be pretty good. I don't want to say special, but I think he could be pretty good. I think he would be above average at the next level. He, uh, you know, has a willingness to, to run through tackles. Um, he runs angry. He runs hard. I definitely like all those things. And 37 catches last year at Tennessee certainly seems like he's someone that can be, uh, you know, active in your passing game as well. So I, I like John Kelly a, a decent bit. Definitely a top ten guy for me. I think that Wadley is much further down the list. Okay. Fair enough. Question asked, question answered. Uh, so, for, tell people where they can find your work and follow you, sir. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Amixta. That's A-M-I-C-S-T-A. And uh, you can find most of my work at Rotoviz and also do some stuff at Number Fire. Uh, so, definitely check that out. Anything quarterback-related, you can probably find for me at 2 QBs. Excellent. Well, it's been a real privilege. Uh, you're a person on the rise, I guess is what I would say. I've, I've enjoyed your work, and I think there's going to be good quality stuff coming from you for years to come. Uh, you have a fan in me, and I look forward to whatever it is you do next. I appreciate it, Bill. It's been, it definitely means a lot to me, and it's uh, great talking football with you. Oh, the pleasure has been mine. And uh, at some point in the future, I'm sure we will talk past the game. Yeah, no question. Definitely. Yeah, you have a great evening, sir. You too, Bill. So, for those who are not already familiar with it, uh, Anthony Nico is instead someone you see his work in a little bit number fire. He is, I think, one of the rising young ones in, in the draft community, draft Twitter, whatever you want to call it. And I think as the battle, whatever you want to use, the uh, the lines that were previously drawn or whatever you want to say between looking at, you know, 
numbers, metrics, uh, analytics, whatever you want to use, and watching tape are things that I think are slowly but surely blending away, and we're going to have a holistic approach to evaluating players, and that's what I'm hoping will eventually win out. As always, it has been a privilege and honor and a pleasure. I thank you all for your time and your attention. We'll do this again in one week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.